Hey, I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Craig Killian. And this is the From First to Last podcast. This is a From First to Last podcast. It's a podcast where my friend Craig and I, we get together each week. We work our way through a director's theatrical filmography from the first film all the way through to their last. Craig, we're in our seventh season and it's been one heck of a season so far. Who are we talking? We're talking Michael Mann. Michael the man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mr. Man. Oh, man, seriously. This this guy is just another level of talent so far. <laughs> it's been such an adventure. And um, I'm just going to say, last week we had, you can't do an epic film like Heat and just go, listen, we're going to drop that in 90 minutes. So we've split it up into two episodes. Last week we did our journey to screen. And we're not going to mess around this week. We're just going to dig right in because we've just been chomping at the bit to get into our next episode. But... We're also joined by an absolute podcasting legend and all-round Michael Mann enthusiast, Mr. Blake Howard. Hello, guys. How are you? Thank you for thank you for the invite. Um, that's an, that's another. I, I like to chat to new podcasts because I whatever cool uh, nickname you give me is definitely bio worthy. You know, all-round podcast man <laughs> enthusiast. I kind of like that. I like that. Maestro. Uh, <laughs> oh, please. I was. I was. I was going to say one of the world's leading people surrounding Michael Mann knowledge and the film Heat. Uh, Blake, I'd love for you to tell people at home a little about uh, yourself and one Heat Minute. Yeah, look, uh, so my name's Blake Howard. Uh, I am a a Sydney-based film critic uh, who basically decided if oh, a couple of years ago after a drunken evening at Sydney Film Festival uh, with some choice enthusiasm from a friend <laughs> to start a podcast that spoke about Michael Mann's 1995 opus, the very film we're talking about today, Heat, uh, one minute at a time in chronological order. And they <laughs> there had been film podcasts like this, uh, the kind of ur text, like the main man, you know, minute text podcast was the Star Wars Minute. And that had started a long time ago. And that that Minute podcast spawned at a bunch of other Minute kind of podcasts. Um, but uh, One Heat Minute sort of started off of the back of that as a way to enter the format. I had no idea there were others really other than the Star Wars Minute. And so I started it really just as an exercise to see if I could get heat out of my system. Uh, <laughs> which... Because uh, in that revelatory moment where I decided to do this project, my friend said, what do you really want to do? And my response was, I just want to fucking talk about heat all day. And so um, and so that became the sort of modus operandi. And what happened was I started it for me. I purely started it as an exercise for me. And I thought I was a huge heat fan in the world. One of the world's premier heat fans, I would say, or heat enthusiasts. It's my all-time favorite film. Um, and what I, what happened was after we started releasing episodes, it grew a massive following and, um, it was, a, it was a two year project. I was doing two episodes a week. The film goes for 166 pre credits oh, minutes. Um, oh, and wow. we've done more than 180 episodes now, but when we started, it was very modest. It was just me and my film critic mates in Australia and, and other enthusiasts sort of came along along the way. 
and it culminated with Michael Mann himself coming onto the final episode of our show. Um, we'll, we'll like to talk about that final iconic minute that literally has his name pop up in the credits uh, as as Vincent Hanna has to come to terms with killing Neil McCauley, the man who is most like in the universe of that yeah. moment, and and how that's not necessarily. Um, you know, maybe what he uh, what he wanted to tip the balance of the of the scales of the universe in that way. So yeah, it 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 certainly uh, was insane and completely blew blew me away. And uh, you said very very kindly before that I'm a Michael you know, Mann expert and a heat expert. Um, I uh, Michael Mann in his entire genre, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Uvra, absolutely. I'm pretty well versed, and I'd say I'm pretty close to one of the best in the world. But there's only one person who knows heat better than me, and I would say that that man is Michael Mann. Yeah. Um, there's pretty much no one else in the world. I would say, um, you know, I spent more than 130 odd hours speaking about it, two entire years dedicated to it. So um, yeah, that's the project. That's one heat minute. And now that's bloomed into a whole bunch of other projects. The last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, Increment Vice, Miami Nice, Josie and the Podcats, Zodiac Chronicle. Love it. And uh, very shortly, Podcaster and Commander. Oh. So, um, yeah, so we're, we're, we're kind of, um, you know, just, you know, and, and, uh, and also how could I forget all the president's minutes? So we've navigated <laughs> through um, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of shows changing our format slightly, but yeah, one heat minute was my, my great love and, yeah, it's still, still the thing I'm most proud of in basically my entire life. So good. A question you probably get asked a lot. How many times do you reckon you've watched it? Uh, more than 200. So Yeah, wow. And it was a question that stupidly came up at like 3 a.m. in fucking my head. Okay, so what made you love the movie the first time you watched it? I didn't love it the first time I watched it, Craig, to be honest. So I didn't really get it. You know, I it's, it's a weird thing. The most... Um, the most amorphous memory I have, I was a teenager. I was yep. at a mate's place. And so, you know, this is back in the day when you do the $7 weeklies or whatever, you'd have piles of yes. tapes. Oh, yes. And I, and I had a, a mate <laughs> whose teenage sister, she was like our, she was like the greatest insane movie nerd. She was a bit of a homebody, but she was such a sweetheart and she would just watch movies all the time and do lots of double taping illegally. Oh, Sorry, statue of limitations that. over. You're not arresting her, right? <laughs> um, so I, the thing I remember the most is you'd often walk down the stairs at his place. It was one of those old like double brick houses with the wooden, like wooden steps on the inside to go upstairs and you'd walk downstairs and his sister's bedroom was at the bottom of the steps. And I just remember I'd walk past all the time. You'd see her just watching movies. She'd just have the door ajar and she'd be watching a movie in her room, chilling out. And I remember very, very vividly, and this would have had to be probably 19, I want to say 96, 97. Um, so a l little bit after it had actually been released that she had a door ajar and I saw hockey, ma hockey mask wearing thieves in a truck. Yes. <laughs> and I just stopped. <laughs> like so many times I'd kept walking. Just, just, just walk straight past like it's nothing. Love it. And then I wa and I was like, and I just stopped there. And obviously, my mate kind of like comes downstairs, like, "Let's go. We're going out. We're you know doing teenage." Why boy are you crap. staring at my sister through the door? He <laughs> knew I wasn't staring at. He uh, knew I wasn't staring at his older sister. Um, he, he was. Uh, he just knew that, like as boys do, you just get glued onto the TV. And you just stop moving. Like the whole yep. world stops existing. The house could be burning down. I was watching something. Nothing else was going <laughs> to occupy me. But that moment, it was like a lightning strike. I was like, "What is that? What's that?" And and then it it grew. It was always something that I could revisit. And obviously it was harder for us 
a little bit older to get when you're younger. Like it's 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 kind of yeah. a concept that is just completely alien to people that you can't immediately get totally on or, and and so it took me a while to get it, and then I eventually got it on like you know the DVD format came, so the Great Warner Brothers DVD with the special features and things like that came on it, and and I just watched yep. it all the time and would find myself coming back to it fairly frequently. But I reckon it was probably in my early twenties where I developed what I begin to call my unhealthy, truly <laughs> yeah. unhealthy relationship with it. When did you last watch it? I haven't watched it in, I haven't watched it since the cinema. So I went to a, a special cinema screening Ooh. with, um, when the last lockdown broke, yep. um, two of my dearest friends, Garth Franklin, the editor in chief of darkhorizons.com yep. and uh, Stu Coot, who's my mate, who's uh, part of the Cinephiles podcast and just one of the funnest film minds that's around. We're very close. And the three of us went and saw it as the lockdown broke at the Hayden Orpheum in Sydney, the brand new 4K uh, uh, release. In the span of two weeks, we saw at that cinema Predator in 4K, oh. Jaws, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Heat. And uh, it, was a it was a pretty good way to... <laughs> to get rid of the lockdown <laughs> that was the last time i watched it i wow. i um uh, you know for the duration of the project so it was like about two years was the 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 whole project um i was watching almost on a daily basis like 20 minutes of heat i'd watch 10 minutes before and 10 minutes after every minute that i was about to talk to people with i was recording Holy. you know in staggered preparation bits just watching it so like almost every day you're watching like 20 minutes of the movie like at least, yeah. and then sometimes forgetting that it's on and just keep watching it. So, um, yeah, I watched it a lot, and then that final, when that final episode dropped, I was like, I, I, I didn't watch it for a whole year. I was like, I, you know, I <laughs> was wouldn't. like, it wasn't about keeping it. Spent. I don't know what it was. I was in a bit of a funny mood about it. It was just like, it can't, it can't get better than the ending to the show that we made. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it was just like, I, the next time I watch this, I really want it to be special. And I feel like, like cinema is heat and cinema. Oh, I love it. Is made to be together. I love it. Craig, you Life go, Oh, to, you got a question, Craig, go for it. So to fit round off the question, what did you get from it last time you watched it? Oof. Um, Sorry, this is what goes through my fucking mind. At three no, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, there's, there's, it's a two part answer. The first part was I got so mad at one person in the screening because there was a, mo there's a great moment. And I, I think it's at about the 115th or 16th minute of the film. And it's, um, <laughs> days of minutes. I, I think, I think it's about that where Al Pacino's Vincent Hanna um, comes around the corner after he's, he runs after Neil McCauley and Christian Hiller, so Val Kilmer and Robert De Niro, and he chases them through that supermarket car park and yeah. Neil's like shooting, shooting over the crowd and the crowd's ducking down and everything like that. And then they eventually escape because Vincent can't take the shot because the crowd is just pandemonium, right? Yep. So he, he starts hearing shots off in the distance and it's Tom Sizemore's Michael Chirita. So he runs over and his team is pushing him one way and he sneaks up behind and it's the moment where Sizemore picks up the little girl hostage yeah, yeah. and it ends in that, that, that beautiful culminating shot of like Chirito turning around, seeing Hannah and Hannah shoots at him and you like, you see him in the sights and he Adjust makes the his shot. Shoulder. Adjust yeah. his shoulder, gets in that perfect <laughs> shot, bang, shoots. And there was a guy who was in the crowd. He goes, bullshit. And I like got blood oh, red mad God. at that moment. <laughs> not because it's not bullshit, but the most bullshit thing in the movie, in a movie that is so 
incredibly authentic is the thought that a graphic designer in LA in 1995 can afford that apartment. <laughs> so if you're a real fan of the movie, you should have yelled bullshit when they were on Edie's balcony, but you're not. So then shut the fuck up. This is a, this is my church. I love it. So that's she could have been doing amazing menus. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, well, I don't know, dude. Craig. You don't know the restaurant. It could have been a McDonald's restaurant. Craig, she if, she, if she was getting a McDonald's and that was what, or they were spending 90s money on her indie album cover she was covering and they were paying her that much, bless her heart because she deserves it. But no, no, what did I get out of it? I just get out of it that, um, I have a gift. I have the I have the greatest gift of any of any fan of any film ever. You watch your favorite films, you love to share it with people who love them, right? 100%. You love yeah. to have you love to have those conversations. I have 120 hours of conversations that play back in my mind like simultaneous voices, like companions to the movie when I watch it. I have a chorus playing in my head. I'm not just um I'm not just singing a solo out the front. I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing it with a choir. Like there is nothing like that. There is, there, there is, I, I wish any person the experience that I have watching heat and any of our huge fans and our like ride or die crew members. I know that some of them have said they've had that same experience. They now watch heat and they've got a freaking chorus of these opinions and <laughs> takes and it. Voices and and I just and I think it's it's I it's it's like you know divinity or madness or whatever you want to call it. Genuinely, that's my experience. I get out of it. I watch it and I'm like, there is not a single frame of this movie that isn't perfect. Um, I'll fight anyone to say it. like it's like it's like any forum, any time. It's a perfect movie in every way, and it's just so profound. I, I it hits me the same way every time. And that final scene, like that crescendo, it like blow like just levels me like it like i'm i'm leveled every time you're married aren't you are you married blake yeah I am. so it's so in similar it's it's you've got a relationship here yeah that you look at that one like you look at your wife and you see your you know your or your partner you see your, your past yeah. your present my wife and, and every- i i look at you see as soon as you see the kids you see the kids you look at a photo the photos like sense memory yeah i have yeah, that but brings for everything oh, together it's a, it you know so it's much. a village that built that relationship yeah and so this is what your your heat thing is is yeah. your basic yeah i know that there's so many movies i watch and I'm, unfortunately <laughs> they're titty flicks from the 80s <laughs> <laughs> you know like meatballs and all these yeah. types of ones you know the camp meatballs and and i won't lie they flood memories back to me of like you know because for some weird reason reason my dad used to watch them yeah <laughs> well, it's not weird but it's, as it's, an adult i know they're not weird but you you get that right you some some things you love because you watched it with friends or something you can remember it so vividly and 100%. some things really affect you because of those things but yeah like i've just got this weird playback right this love weird it. thing I, I i have something that not many people have oh. with it oh. and it's it's really special i love this whole chat's been actually awesome because the way that we i'd intended for us to kick off was to ask when was the last time you watched this film? <laughs> and, <laughs> and what what did you expect? That's generally what we sort of get to this part of the, the chat. And so um, I guess, Craig, we've heard Blake's answer and I don't think you can top it so sucked in. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but like... when? No, I'm interested to hear what I, you guys have to a, say I, about it. I should it. be like Ormond White and be contrarian. <laughs> <laughs> It's when shit. was the last time you watched it, though, Craig? And I guess for us, Blake, so we, um, we've we just come off the back of uh, having a real great chat around The Last of the Mohicans. Mm-hmm. Um, also, for Craig and I, whenever we decide, and we actually decide five directors in advance, 
So we do a volume of five directors. So we'll often acquire these movies and they're sitting on our shelves and we're not allowed to watch them until it comes to podcast time. <laughs> and so, yeah, true. so we've sat for, for now probably, well, for myself, I've probably looked for four seasons at Michael Mann's Body of Work sitting on my shelf and gone, oh, man, like I'm itching to watch Ali like you wouldn't believe. Um, yeah. It pisses you off because you bring up the director and you're like, man, I feel like watching yes, it now. So yes, so bad. And, you know, I haven't watched The Wog Boy in years because I know we're getting to <laughs> the the dream Kings of Mykonos baby right. is crisp it's waiting to be open oh no it's sitting <laughs> yeah, there sitting on the shelf still got director's definitive still cut. got the JB Hi-Fi $2 <laughs> sticker on it um, so Craig when was the last time you watched Heat I didn't realise how long it had been until I started watching I'm the it the same I would honestly say it'd have to be it'd have to be a good five years hey yeah, it's it's a weird it's weird in the fact that because it's one of those staple films in your movie in your movie life, you know what I mean? It always feels like you've just watched it. Yep. Um, simply because it's so clear to you, you know what I mean? It's and it, and it always means so much. A lot of like the, what I bring to that, bring from Heat is it always reminds me of my brother John. <laughs> My Johnny. brother John is the guy who, who who brought in heaps. Yeah, John's John's been on the podcast a couple of times, and he's he's crazy about this. Um, and he used to always um, he he introduced me to Michael Mann. Um, we always him and I used to always watch it. Every time we buy a new sound system, the first way we yeah. check it out is the yeah. Michael Mann shootout. That's how we test <laughs> all of it. Yeah. That's how, that's how you know if you've got a good sound that's system. That's how man. that's how you know that that's how you know what level you're. It's impossible to watch with a family asleep. <laughs> like yeah, wake up your small with children asleep. with machine gun I, fire. I love how like, life changes. Topping out because the last sound bar I bought, I made sure it had the noise cancelling for nighttime mode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was surprised at how how loud the finale was because oh, yeah. I I always just said to my wife I like oh no it's all good the gunfight's over she's like I can't can you turn it down I'm trying to go to sleep I'm like don't worry look the gunfight's over there's not much loudness anymore can, <laughs> and, then, and then the planes can we the say planes, the planes coming the out, sound like, oh, shit, design on this film just blew me away if there's a real takeaway from this film which I had like Michael Mann has been such a rabbit hole for me. Blake, it's like I'm concerned that you know the Nolanites. It's bringing out my manite in me. Um, I'm just like I'm getting hard in this. Um, but the sound design. Yeah, look, the the. There's no bigger Michael Mann fan in the world than Chris Nolan, <laughs> except me. So, so from your knowledge, Blake, and and obviously correct me if I'm wrong. He. It seems like his sound design kicked up for this one. I yeah. don't remember it being as clear in Last of the Mohicans. Oh, they, all of Michael Mann's films, I think, I think it's just the, how, whatever format you watch it in, you're going to notice the sound design and yeah. whatever like level of care has gone into that thing that you're watching, you're going to notice with Mohicans. It's not as pronounced because especially um, when you're talking about like gun battles and drums firing and especially the score just absolutely you know, yeah. ravishing score that's going down. Um, it kind of sometimes will drown out some of the the tempo of the gunfire because the gunfire is almost an accompanying instrument, especially, you know, we did a mini series on Mohicans called Last 12 Minutes, the Mohicans, because of that insane finale. I think it's just one of the, it's maybe one of the best finales on yeah. any movie ever, but uh, particularly oh, yeah. on anything. Oh. But you, the, the gun beats are nearly orchestral. Like it's like, 
they fire <laughs> off and they're just playing as part of this sweeping score. Um, but I think with Heat, what happened was Michael Mann has always been a guy about experiential sound. So he wants to make you feel like whatever the sounds that are happening at that moment, he wants you to, um, he really wants you to feel it. And I feel like in things like Manhunter, when you hear the wheelchair running down into the underground car park and the person's engulfed in flames, yep. Freddie Lowndes is engulfed in flames, Stephen Lang, like that, that sounds different on his Manhunter re-release that came out. That did, like I watched it on Blu-ray for the first time recently, and that just sounds different for me. But I, what he did this time was they did the shootout, and there is nothing like the real sound of gunfire. And so they yep. they recorded live the live gunfire on set of all these blank rounds that they were shooting and all these squibs, and then they went to take it because they never usually use that sound. But Michael Mann had watched all of these scenes in dailies, which is just basically after a day's work, they do a rough cut of the scene to make sure they've got all the shots so that when they take it to the editing room, it's going to work. And so he'd watched them all and they they put on like the Foley, you know, post-production sound of it. And when they did that, he goes, this doesn't sound right. What the hell's wrong with the sound? And they're like, <laughs> oh, we've just, he goes, no, no, kill. I don't want that sound. I want the sound that was there on the day. So they literally then edited back in that sound. And so that's why it is so insanely different. And then similarly, they shot that one of the last films um, to shoot at LAX <laughs> on a runway, yeah. no less like pre nine yeah. eleven. Um, so, and they recorded all that, that sound there. And so that's why I feel like you've got this different, it's a different level because it's the atmosphere is so experiential. Like you are actually in the moment, even at the beginning with the, the truck, like everything about the guns yep. firing there they just, the concrete, it's got a different level of acoustics. It's got a different topper. Like it, the sound is just insane. So yeah, look, Michael Mann films, all of them sound design exquisitely. Um, um, and, uh, but, but particularly heat takes it to that next level because it starts to do something just by necessity um, that yep. is really inventive. Awesome. Yeah, oh, so it. obviously I back to it. obviously what I was saying. Jeff. Yes, sorry, sorry. Jeff. I was throwing off, mate. Yeah, um, so... Yeah, so- yeah, so I guess I expected, as always, you know, like it's been a while since I watched it, so I guess I expected everything. I expected what I loved. See, I've always, um, I used to, I always a big, I loved act, I loved the acting part. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, I did acting through school, you know, um, you know, and all that type of stuff. Um, and so watching these two, well, all of these people at their, I would almost say at their peak performances, yeah. Um, it was just something that basically I I couldn't wait to see again, um, but I picked up a lot more than that this time, and it's so funny. And as Blake was talking about before, is obviously as we get through our lives, you see, I guess you, you'll, we see different things. We start to see as we get older, and yeah, and I started, I st- I saw a lot, a, a very different. I I remember growing up, these guys were the coolest guys I could. I want it to be, you know what I mean? Like if, if I was a teenager and they say, Hey, you want to be a cop? I'd be like, yeah, yeah. I, I want to be, you know, Al Pacino. I want to be, he's, he's a, or I wanted to be, you know, not Serpico, you know, but I wanted, to be, I wanted to be this. And I wanted to, I wanted to be Macaulay. You know what I mean? These guys were just so cool. The way they dressed, the way they acted watching it today, man. I was just like, these characters are broken. Oh um, yeah. Val Kilmer especially, I, it, it did the same I, thing. I, I think he was so cool, Craig, like Val Kilmer's character. And now looking back, I'm just like, you are a broken, washed up man. Like it's so, it's so heartbreaking. <laughs> 
Sorry, Craig. I like I I didn't realize, and this is one of those things that obviously like we're saying is you know at first you don't realize you just notice guns, you notice gunfire and all that type of stuff. Is I didn't realize how lonely Macaulay is. I yeah, didn't, yeah. I, I didn't I didn't pick it up often. You know what I mean? I guess you know because you don't basically. I guess I've lived that lucky enough life when I was f- first watching it to see it. But man, just watching him through his whole experience. You know, when he's at the dinner table with all these all the guys, and and he's watching them and he wants to call, and how he breaks every rule in his own, <laughs> yeah, his own friggin' you know, his own just to basically. Um, just to move forward with this girl who's a a, a multi-millionaire graphic designer. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, you don't need, if she's a multi-millionaire, you don't need to rob that bank, but maybe she should just sell her apartment and then he doesn't have to rob the bank. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Like, <laughs> you know, maybe she's it. an aspiring actress who's living at a producer's, you know, apartment <laughs> that they do Sugar that in Daddy. LA. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I'm lucky enough to say like, the chief film critic of the New York Times, Manola Dargis, is a friend, and she pointed that out to me. And she goes, you know what, Blake? That's the romance we allow in Michael Mann movies. We will just flat out ignore that this apartment <laughs> is too expensive, but we'll get down to the exact gun, the exact you know physical tactics, the exact sound of the gunfire, 100%. the exact schematics. We want to know all that stuff, but don't worry about the apartment. Don't worry about that. It's That's like any time you, um, you see a character and they go, what do you do? I'm a writer. Yeah. And they always live this very comfortable fucking life. <laughs> They've got a beautiful new car. They're always dressed nice. They're not eating two-minute noodles and shit. <laughs> they're just, you know, they're affording everything. They're just, they have, yeah, they have a tan. They've been outside. <laughs> yep. That's not possible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're not trying to, trying to drum up business every time they talk to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, I guess, like, for me coming into this, I was really shocked as well. I'm a, I'm a little bit Rain Man, Blake. I've actually uh, catalogued every movie I've watched for the last 11 years now. And Bless so, you. Um, Bless you. So I, I wish I had. You know what's so annoying? There's nothing more annoying. There's a film site called Letterboxd. I'm not yep. sure how many of your listeners use it. I love it. I, I use it. it. I mean, I know Jeff's – it's the best, right? I could have – done that there's nothing that annoys me more that when i log a film that i've seen before and it's like have you seen this i'm like haven't i logged this like what what was i doing i should have just joined this like 10 years ago it would have been so much freaking easier yep. um but yeah no i i love it so yeah no so, please that's the coolest thing ever do you can i ask do you have a spreadsheet yes. or is it a book it's or what a is it a spreadsheet it's fully a spreadsheet he used to have i don't know if he still does it he oh. used to get um <laughs> he used to get the, the posters and cut them down I, and make this gigantic I, I poster have, of all the posters. I have a desktop So they're like background. little tiles oh. on this one gigantic screenshot. So every I time see. I watch a movie, the poster goes on my desktop background and it just is now this colourful pattern that's actually, if you zoom in, they're all the individual movie posters. It actually stemmed Look, from... If you zoom out, some... it's just a picture of Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Truman Show. <laughs> just keep going out. Keep going out. It I just love turns it. Jeff. But I was really shocked because I looked on my spreadsheet and discovered that Heat wasn't on there. And I was like, surely not. There is no in 11 way years. in 11 years. Because I know that not only have I bought this on multiple um, formats. I bought it on Blu-ray and had it on my shelf for years and then upgraded to the definitive director's cut because I'm like, I, yeah. I want to I wanna see what man really wants me to see in this. Um, so I guess, I don't know. The inferior version in my opinion. It's so intriguing uh, because it's about three minutes different, isn't it? Not even. Uh, yeah. It's like when we looked into the... De- 
the director's definitive cut of Last of the Mohicans and you realise that Michael Mann is literally just changing a second here, two seconds here. I think um, what I start discovering about Michael Mann, and I'm going to be in full disclosure, the keep is like my Michael Mann gateway drug here, Blake. Um, (laughs) It sent me down the biggest rabbit hole that like literally I said to Craig, I could just do a whole uh, season of a podcast around the keep and how wild that (laughs) story is. Um, But it made me realize how meticulous a filmmaker uh, Michael Mann really is. And we did, last season we covered Catherine Bigelow and often Mm. there were these parallels between her filmmaking and Michael Mann's filmmaking, uh, which was really fascinating. And so you can't watch Point Break and not go, oh, this is a couple of years before Heat and the frenetic energy going on definitely bled into Heat. And But then you watch Blue Steel and you're like, well, Manhunter's definitely played a a part in the blue steel you know so that sort of thing so I was really intrigued to see just how a meticulous filmmaker who gets a career to develop a project and basically a second shot at it um you know I did watch LA Takedown in the preparation for this episode yeah I haven't watched it's it. Serious. I think I text Craig at one stage and I'm like it's bizarre it's 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 strange isn't it yeah uh, it's it's not this is the way I describe it. It's, it's like, it's like seeing uh, that movie Beowulf. Remember the one that was like Ray Winston. Yep. And they motion captured Ray Winston. Yep. But there's something in the Monster. eyes. Yep. Yeah. There's something in the eyes that you know that it's not a real human being. Yep. Like it doesn't pass the test of the uncanny valley, right? <laughs> the uncanny valley is that there is something about the human face that we as human beings will in, in innately detect that there's something wrong. So that's why it's bad. It's not like an, aw- it's not completely awful. No. Tonally, some of the actors are really interesting and different. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's some kind of interesting parallels. Um, Xander Berkeley is in both films. He plays Ralph, but he actually plays Wayne Grow in yep. the other one. He's the only actor that crosses over between Takedown and Heat. Um, but it was just a completely different stylistic exercise and does that thing that, TV shows have to do, which is have this huge pilot episode that sets up this huge story. But the intention was to make it a Vincent Hanna TV show that just went on and on. And it just never quite materialized because they kind of had to rush it to its conclusion because it was just following a TV format. But it's just bizarre. They're saying the same words, same actors, different (laughs) structures, different scenes. It's very strange. Like it's very strange, Um, but it's not bad. It's just really strange. And I guess plot wise, is it, is it the similar plot wise, like and everything like that, or is it? Yeah, the only the the major the major difference is spoilers for LA Takedown fans out there. Um, <laughs> you can um, for Rooka fans. Ba- basically, um, Neil goes to kill Wango and is killed, and then oh. Vincent kills Wango, and that's basically that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and so it kind of concludes there, but it's. Um, I think what people realize is, and this is the great vindication, is they're like, oh, you've got all these characters, you know, and Heat, the 70 speaking roles, and, um, you know, you've got like 100, loca- you know, f- physical actual locations. They're like, oh, do you need this? Do you need that? And when you watch LA Takedown, the answer is yes, you need it all. Because otherwise <laughs> it's just that. Otherwise it's just a failed TV pilot. It's not a crime, a definitive crime epic. Yeah. It's so intriguing too because I think the first – 
10 minutes, I, I messaged Craig and I was like, I feel like I'm watching the Heat porn parody. Like it was like yeah. so bizarre. Yeah, that's totally and, right. And, and meat. Just, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, and so oh, can I share a really fun, uh, my first Heat experience? Is, is this cool? Uh, we've talked about it before on the podcast, which is uh, – I was 15 years old. I I just turned 15 when it was was released and I took a friend and he was actually, no, we hadn't even turned 15 yet. Um, So we're 14 and it was one of the first couple films that were coming out with the MA rating, which in Australia you have to be 15 in order to see it. So I went to the uh, Tugra Greater Union Cinemas, I caught the train down. And um, I bought my ticket and I was taller than my little mate. And so the the guy says, how old are you? And I'm like, oh, 15. He's like, cool. Here's my ticket to heat. Says to my mate, how old are you? And he goes, oh, 15. He's like, no, how old are you really? And he's like, 14. And so he's like, I can't legally sell you these tickets. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two tickets to a movie called Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. (laughs) And when you hand them in, you're going to walk past cinema two and go to cinema four so you can go watch michael Mann's heat and that guy literally started something for me because i remember that was like the cinematic awakening i was so engrossed in that film my poor mate was just on the lookout the entire time that we were going to get yanked. <laughs> but um but for and i always say it's an elaborate lie that jeff made up <laughs> just <laughs> To hide, to hide a lifestyle that we're all more open about these days. <laughs> Look, Tu Wong Fu stinks. I'm sorry. It's got great actors, but you'd much rather see Priscilla. Like, Ozzy already did it. fantastic. Priscilla still absolutely rips. It's one of the funniest movies ever made in this country, as far as I'm concerned, despite yep. some unfortunate characterizations that haven't exactly aged well. But um, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm such a fan of that movie and it's bawdy sense of humor. It's lovely. And I, you know, if you were going to buy a ticket to one, you'd rather it be Priscilla than Tu Wong Fu, but that's great. That guy is a hero. That, that he cinema totally clerk is. is a freaking legend. legend. <laughs> I hope he's doing well wherever he is. Um, he's a legend. He's, he's, he's ca- the karmic good that would should and would hopefully be in that guy's life is <laughs> undeniable. To do that, he's a legend. He's a king. It's so good. I think watching now uh, with 10 years under my belt, uh, um, what really has hit me is um, – I would love to know, and you would probably know if this was common knowledge, Blake. Has Michael Mann studied architecture? Uh, no, he hasn't formally studied architecture, but he is a, I mean, he's just one of the most voraciously committed researchers. So he will, he will, he is inspired by different artists and yep. he is inspired by different photographers and he's inspired by different musicians and he's absolutely very aware of architects yep. and, and uses architecture actively in his cinema. He never studied it formally or anything like that. He's only formally studied um, sort of English and, 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 and film studies and went to film school in England at the time. Um, so he's done, I think some sort of like what we'd call like a, I think liberal arts is what they kind of cover it, yep. but yeah, like political sciences and stuff like that. But he, you know, he, he went into filmmaking very early, but he's just very well read, very well researched, very erudite, sophisticated architecture is a huge part of this. Oh. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not formally studied. No. 
Because I've been blown away through his filmography that we're working through. Probably Manhunter was the one where it really stood out to me mm. is mm. Um, the scene where Will Graham's just met Hannibal Lecter and he's like running down the stairs and you just watch this shot. The uh, I studied architecture for three years and like that shot is literally like some of the photos that you would see in architecture books, textbooks and things like that. And I'm like, Michael Mann just loves it. And you watch uh, Heat. That building's in Black Panther. Is it really? Yeah. Oh. Just watch. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. The outside of it when he runs out and obviously he takes a breath. Yeah. Um, like he's outside having his panic attack. Yeah. yeah. That whole building is shot. Yeah, that's also in Black Panther. I think that's where his dad dies. Oh, wow. Well, well thank UN you place. for that. Tasty tidbit, Craig. Look at that. I love it. I love it. Oh, that's, a, that's a good tidbit. Uh, I think Heat, again, just shows how much he uses a city as the character as much as your your actors. And you can't help but from that opening shot of the train station, which, again, I'm an absolute fiend for symmetry in shots. And Michael <laughs> Mann just, he seriously, the more I watch his films, I'm like, oh, this is dangerous. I'm going to become like this huge Michael Mann enthusiast. Just because I know a couple of podcasts you can listen to. <laughs> I fine. actually, uh, I did find your podcast through uh, Joe Lynch, who you'd had on there, and yeah. he was my gateway into One Heat Minute. Now, I will be honest; I haven't listened to every episode uh, because you, you know, you don't. I mean, I'm shocked when people have. <laughs> I'm shocked when people have. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of episodes. It's now 180 episodes. It's a lot. It's crazy. Like you'd know what it's like being a podcaster yourself uh, when you're doing the editing of your episodes. You don't have a lot of time to listen to other podcasts uh, when your oh, world is surrounded. <laughs> I still, I still, you know, I still get it, but no, I, 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 I just know why, why I was being cheeky yeah. there is like, I just know that he, he can kind of have this weird effect on you. Like I've obviously studied heat so yeah. closely. Mohicans is another favorite that I've loved since it came out and studied since and talked about it on podcasts. And so therefore you have a different lens on it and research it differently. And then now Miami Vice, which is also one of my favorites, definitely researched the living daylights out of that, talked about it a lot, almost read everything you can read on it. But like, he's the kind of director that just will shock and surprise you. Like, I'm so glad that Craig brought up that tidbit about Manhunter because recently they had the Criterion collection about neo-noir. So that is great neo-noir selection on the Criterion channel. Um, that if you legally use a VPN in Australia, you can legally access overseas. Love it. Um, and I pay for it to legally do yep. that. Um, but I was watching that and I've owned a few of the movies on Blu-ray and whatnot. So sometimes I would just like watch it because you're lazy. You don't put in the Blu-ray player. You just watch it on your Apple TV. <laughs> and I was, um, and I turned on Manhunter and just even exactly as you said, like you were talking about that scene. And then there's the symmetry of the jail scene. Yeah. Like how he sets up the jail scene. Like that movie is just so... I mean, stunningly composed yeah. that you're like, like every frame a picture kind of beautiful yeah. compared to later on what he does with Miami Vice, which is so contingent on movement that he's just like shocks you. I was like, man, did I miss how good Manhunter is? And the answer is no, but of course I didn't. But he's just a guy that sneaks up on you like that because you just, if you just let a film wash over you, you're in the right mood. You can be like, whoa, this is really a vibe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny. You, you know how you see, um, obviously, there's that famous photo of Quentin Tarantino in Django Unchained where he's got his fingers up. He's, you know, he's got that, he's doing like that L shape to obviously just see the camera. Yes. You can tell that 
that's exactly how he sets his dress. He's, he dresses his sets. Yes. Um, Michael Mann dresses his sets by looks at the camera and goes, no, 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 you need to move that. That needs to be straight yeah. because in the camera, it's not straight. Yeah. It might be, <laughs> you know, and you can just tell it's all about what he's going to see through that camera at the end where some of them, I guess they want uh, that. I would assume anyway, um, some of them just want a full set where they can drift it around and stuff like that. But he's just basically not. Nah, I need, this is what I want. This is how, and this is how it's got to react to that side of the camera. If you, it's amazing. I, I have to show you guys something. Sorry, one second. I'm just <laughs> slightly away from my microphone. Bad podcast form. I apologize. No, but, no it's great. Um, so there's a terrific uh, Scream Factory slash, slash Shout Factory special edition of Manhunter yes. that you can get. And and if you if you if you've got it if you're lucky enough to get your hands on it because it's now out of print and I paid a ridiculous amount of money on eBay for this I've seen stupid how much thing. they are Blake <laughs> it's just crazy so I I paid a ridiculous amount of money because I was too tardy on getting it but there's a terrific William Peterson interview about exactly as what you're talking about Craig he's like now reflecting on the time so there's that scene in Manhunter one of the scenes where he's on the phone and the the camera is framed with him sitting in like a chair that's beside a window um, looking out into the city and behind him in the city there is a light up elevator in a building that is across town that is moving in the frame while he's on the phone i believe to dennis farina's character and what he recalls in that scene is that michael set sets the shot composes it structures it with the architecture in mind and he had people in the other building via walkie-talkies remotely going, we're starting, we're rolling, and now go, press up on the elevators. And they coordinated the elevator movement because that's how fastidious he was. He wanted the light-up elevator in the shot and to happen. And so there's a really funny story with, like, older William Peterson just, like, shooting the breeze, talking about how insane Michael Mann is (laughs) in the the best possible way, right, like, talking about that. And um, I'm I'm lucky enough to speak to uh, a few of his collaborators. And one of them on both films is Dante Spinotti, yep. who's I think one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. Um, and he did, he started with him on thief. He did Manhunter, He did heat, um, came in on Mohicans, um, uh, after that. And, uh, <laughs> and those sorts of things. But Dante is very like, Michael sets the shots. We light them, you know, and, and, and they have a great language together where he can set things up faster and get them lit faster and get them going. But he was very clear with me. He's like, you know, as a cinematographer with Michael Mann, I'm not, I'm not doing this active collaboration that sometimes happens with people where I'm telling them where they should set the shot based on how the scene is dressed. He's like, Michael sets the shot (laughs) and I I light the shot. (laughs) He was very clear with me. Like I, I light it. Michael sets the shot. I'm like, that's so cool. And I guess that's just yeah, the, that's thing the reputation I see of uh, Michael. Yeah. He's maybe not the most collaborative. Oh no, he is, but he's just, he's just demanding. He just, he just has a vision. And I think he's, you look at, he's like James yeah, yeah, Jay, you just look at those. I mean, you know, even in sporting teams, it's like certain people that you go, oh, that person must be a tyrant. Once they get their guys, yeah. like their teammates, those people that just work well with them, you just watch them fly and you're like, oh, this is so wonderful. H- how do they do that? And they're like, they all just are marching to the beat of the same drum. Yeah. Like they just, something, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. You just know, they know exactly what they want. So get on board or get out. Like it's not going to work. And, and I, and, I, I really truly feel that like I, I obviously I you shouldn't condone anyone to sort of have like a bullying relationship and I absolutely don't think that that's Michael Mann's personality in any way shape or form but I do think that he's like this is my vision 
be on it or get off. And you watch that his frequent collaborators have worked with him for many years are much like that. You know, Fincher has those people. Soderbergh has those people. I mean, Soderbergh does it all himself, basically. (laughs) But, you know, but Fincher has those people. Michael Mann has those people. They just, they they get in with these people and they work together. Even Tarantino, same, you know, same same editing for the longest time. You know, Sally Menke, the dearly departed editor, into Fred Raskin and and Bob Richardson. You know, there's a lot of those frequent collaborators that just stay together because they just, that's how they do it. I think they need to. Hey, I think you need to, you know, especially if you, for lack of a better word, are such a signature director, like an iconic director. And there's a reason that you are that iconic. And there's a reason that you can feel your signature in every film. You need to look over, like you said, how many sets were there? There's, you know, there's so many. There's like a hundred, there's a hundred locations in heat. And then, (laughs) and all the cast and crew, you couldn't be fumbling around going, ah, I don't think so. Um, I'm not sure. You know, Tarantino, you know, he's very similar to like that as well. He hates improvisation, you know. Um, There's awesome stories about him just ripping into Jamie Foxx. You know, I love those types of stories. (laughs) Well, you know, they're they're fun. And like, there's a great interview recently with um, Quentin Tarantino in his recent like uh, run of interviews he did for the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book yep. uh, re- release, he just talked about, he goes, if you're in the camera department, if you're in the camera department in my crew, you can't mess up. <laughs> He's like, if you mess up, you're getting fired. He's like, the, that's why my crew, we hold such an incredible standard. He's like, the lot, because the camera department needs to make sure that obviously it's lit, you've got the right amount of film stock. Because if you delay, like some mistake that they can make can directly delay filming so you've got all the actors yeah you got all the extras you got everything going and if the camera department slows it down he's like someone's getting fired like if they didn't bring enough stock they didn't bring the right stock they didn't bring the right lens that person's going to get fired the pressure's on and so therefore no one gets fired in that department because i bet you they are all absolutely freaking surgeons <laughs> at what they <laughs> yeah. do and they are just incredible um but he's but he's just that's his outlook and i'm like you know an actor can fumble a line an extra can trip over by accident. A stunt he can try a huge stunt that doesn't come off, and then they've got to roll it back. But if the camera department doesn't can't light it, and they can't film it, or they don't have the right stock, or they don't have the right lens, and it has to stop production until they can get it, his opinion is that that person's well, maybe Kurt, not cut out. Kurt Russell talks about it. you're not allowed to fall asleep on set. Yeah, <laughs> and if you do, they bring out. There's a big Bertha. She's like a, like this four foot dildo, and they lay it on you, and you fall, and they take a photo with, you with the dildo. That's fair too. Yeah, exactly. Look, hey, that's directors. That that's the whole word is called director, not collaborator. I mean, they direct the directs. I guess. You know I guess I mean? too. And that's why I see Michael Mann. Obviously, passing back to it. Yeah, Michael Mann. You can just tell it's his vision on screen each time. And yeah. I definitely think there are some lessons that he learnt in making the keep which that troubled production and him trying to get that vision out as much as he can, which was he was shooting for the moon in that movie, um, you know, and to have it turn out the way that it did, you know, with that 96-minute cut and um, a bit of a choppy few moments here and there in the film. Um, I, I really think that it's a crucial film for him to get to that point where he is so meticulous in getting what he wants on the screen. Um, almost again, and throwing back, we learned in our early episodes how how much Kubrick played like an integral part to the formative years of his uh, cinematic journey. And you can't watch a film like Heat and not just look at every image and say that is intentional. There, there is purpose behind everything here. Even there's like, oh, I wish I'd written it down. There's a shot where it's not symmetrically 
um, shot. It's slightly to the side with, I think it's uh, De Niro's girlfriend sitting there, the uber-rich um, graphic designer, and she's just <laughs> slightly off-centre. And, like, even the diner scene where, you know, they're not obeying that 180. Wait, are you talking about when she re- realises what's happening and it's in the morning and uh, she's silhouetted behind yes. the sunrise so there's the glare? Exactly. Yeah, well... Well, that mirrors exactly the experience that she's going yep. through in that moment. It's about 120 minutes in the film, <laughs> just in case you're wondering. I love it so awesome. much. But, like, it's moments like that that I'm watching and for the first time realising, because we're watching these films now through a lens of, you know, project after project and the growth of yeah. a director that you go, wow, it is so intentional. Uh, we put a video up last season to explain the 180-degree rule to a few people mm, out there because mm, mm. sometimes when you start talking filmmaking talk, people go, what the heck is that? And it was a great example of the diner scene between, and this is just, to me, Michael Mann has just, like, just gone up and up and up because of that scene, is where De Niro is talking to his girlfriend before they've, they've met in the diner and it's not obeying that 180-degree rule until the moment that he lets his guard down and the camera sweeps over the bench and then suddenly we we follow the rules so that your your mind and your internal sort of feeling doesn't go oh something's off here at the moment yeah you don't you don't actually it's implacable you don't know what's wrong with yeah. it like I think that that's that's the best way to talk about film technique. It's like, why does the scene feel weird? Yeah. <laughs> why does it feel weird? Why do you feel even more awkward? Well, it's because the camera's breaking rules that you've been taught can't be broken yeah. over and over again, and it's just doing something wrong there. So, yeah, no, I I love I I I think technique technique for technique's sake is it becomes showy, but like I think the really great directors. And you watch it as an evolutionary thing with lots of different directors too. Like, you know, the the difference between Paul Thomas Anderson, another guy that you might eventually talk about, like the difference between a Paul Thomas Anderson doing Boogie Nights and the Paul Thomas Anderson that made There Will Be Blood is so stark because one is trying to show you how much like Martin Scorsese they are and the other is going, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to tell a tale yeah. and be so extremely confident. I don't have to be flashy. I just have to tell the story. Um, and then one of them's, you know, I mean, he's opus, uh, in many ways, but, um, yeah, it's talent, mate. Talent. It is. It totally yeah, is. It's, it's, it's one of those funny things though. And a lot of casual audience audience don't understand is how deliberate everything yep. is. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? Like there's, you know, you will always hear sometimes some people in the crowd go, Oh my God, she looks awful. Look at that. There is a reason, you know, there's a million makeup. <laughs> there's, 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 like you said, there's lighting. Everyone, if she looks awful on the screen, there's a reason. Obviously, unless we're going really, really low budget. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you're watching a movie in a cinema, there's a reason. It's deliberate. Everything is so deliberate on how it's being put on there. Yeah. And obviously, it's more so for each, for um, some caliber of directors as well. There's one other thing I wanted to touch on because you were talking, Jeff, about like your, you hadn't revisited it in a while and Craig's had been a few years yep. since you guys had watched it. Um, I This is where I started like what was part of the, I guess the, what I can now call like the road to the one heat minute thing and my complete obsession. I would watch so many films as a film critic, like reviewing things on different podcasts that I was doing at the time and early like criticism and going to film festivals and watching absolutely everything. 
And so many times I became completely disillusioned with why I'd ever wanted to watch a movie again. I'm like, movies suck. Yes, I hate this. I hate the world. All movies are awful. There couldn't possibly be a movie that is going to make me want to go see another movie. And I would come home at like 11 o'clock at night from a screening and I'd be there and I'd just throw heat on. <laughs> well, Jeff and I were very similar. We So one of the things we... We, we always found that, and it was especially around the time when early, like, you know, let's let's be honest, the Devon Farachis all around when that started coming through, mm-hmm. is when it was fun to rip something apart. Yes. You know what I mean? And um, and you always like, oh, yeah. This, it was like internet was always, legitimacy. Once the internet yeah. became legitimate yeah. and people could shit on things <laughs> early, it became an and, art form. Yeah. yeah, some people were and, very and, good at it. And there's something heartbreaking about being a movie lover, and going to a movie and then some suddenly your mindset is where they went wrong. Yeah. You know, your mindset is about dissecting a film and where it's gone wrong. And Jeff and I were very and we'd have these huge conversations in the car on the way back. Once again, which this leads show, to this, this podcast. Show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we'd be like, Man, I don't we shouldn't be like this, you know. We spent friggin' Um, four hours sitting in a waiting room f- to do a 10-minute interview with one of the actors and then get shunned out after three questions when even though they promised us five. <laughs> or we'd have to basically travel from Newcastle to watch 11.30 Jatham Staten movie, which we know, but but because your, your mindset was to cut something apart, you're basically like, I'm losing that reason why I love yeah. films because there are movies that are not, as perfect as you know when you put on your critic's eye, but there's it just sits. No in film your is heart. perfect. Jeff loves Rain of Fire. Oh, don't That's, I yeah. ever? <laughs> yeah, he loves it. Yeah, and, look, and there's uh, movies that like that. I lo- I love Highlander. It's uh, and, and look, Russell Mulcahy was never going to be an amazing director, but there's just movies. I just you know anything with Christopher Lambert. I'm just suddenly I'm like I love this. I love Christopher <laughs> no, Lambert. And I like we. Um, so I, one of our shows, so One Heat Minute Productions is a bunch of shows, but one of our shows is Miami Nice and my co-host Katie Walsh is a great LA Times and Tribune News Service critic. And Katie sort of started this thing saying only positive hot takes. Love like it. she, We just yeah. start, yeah, so it's the only positive hot takes. And so for me, I, I just find myself constantly gushing about things that are great. And you brought up one the other time, well, the, even the other moment ago, um, and I didn't jump on it at the time, but it's like um, – in preparation for doing Master and Commander, which is Peter Weir's great yes. film. Like, obviously, I'm watching so much other Weir yeah. stuff right now as well. And um, so I watched The Truman Show the oh. other day, again, for however many, the umpteenth time. And I was just watching, this time I watched it with a real verve and like a real focus, yep. you know? Like, sometimes you're like, I, all right, I'm tuning in. I want to see all the weird tricks. Like, I want to see everything. And what happened was, you know, with a, with a pen in my hand and my notebook ready, and they just got discarded <laughs> after like three minutes. And I was like, this is a fucking movie, yeah. guys. This is a movie. And at the end That's, of it, I was just like, this is a masterpiece. Yeah. Maybe I should do a podcast on this. You know, it's like you like, and, and then that's the effect that I've had with like, I watched Witness the other day, another great weird film, you know, like again, but it's just one of those things, right? He, he seems like a guy that you guys would love too. Um, but it's just one of those things where, I truly feel that there are so many movies that give you that incredible feeling yep. that I just have no, I have no time. And I don't think, I think the community is getting a little bit healthier. I mean, the online film yeah, community yep, is getting true. healthier because like truly 
if there's a crap movie, we don't want to talk about it. I, and, and if there's a good movie that is having some beautiful, like conflicting opinions and they're very artfully delivered and, and are delivered with like feeling and meaning and then no meanness, just like technical stuff or, you know, I'm like, Oh, I love this. But if there's something that's just pure trash, I just do not, en- I don't want to engage it. You, but you may not even see a rating go up on my letterbox. Um, you'll, you know, I think the podcast I think the podcast world has helped bring that in because I helped I think it's helped give voice to people who can't write. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like and 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 you and it's given voice to those people like like all of us. Obviously I'm I'm not saying you guys can't write. Let I me just write. say unequiv- let me say unequivocally. I have found my instrument. I'm the tambourine, <laughs> right? This podcast of the tambourine in the orchestra. At the front, there's Manol. Right at the front, there was this was reserved for Roger Ebert. May he rest in peace. Yeah. Um, but now Manola Dargis is the one who I think is the greatest living film critic in the world, and she's right up front and she's wailing away on that lead violin. Right, <laughs> and there's a whole chorus of people whose names are Matt Zolazites, Bill Gebiri, Angelica J. Bastian. You know, like Roxana Dardi, like all these great people who are just like some of the best critics working. Jace Bailey, you know, Josh Rothkoff, David Fear, like so many of my friends and peers, Adam Naiman, like they're all up the front too, like in that, the front bit, whatever the front bit is, this is how much I know about orchestras, nothing, right? <laughs> they're all up the front and I'm just so happy, gleeful, in fact, that I'm up the back on the tambourine. Like that's me just like banging away. I'm in there, man. This is my voice. This is what I can do. Um, but yeah, look, writing is a special skill. You know, I, I don't pretend that I, yeah. you know, I, like, the, but the greatest film writing, we can't pretend... That was what was the ugliest part of the internet legitimacy was like that that people it legitimized a whole bunch of like really mean personal attacky yep. uh no no concept of like film craft no concept of acting craft no concept of story craft bs writing um and but I think now the that's a lot of that is drowning it's going away. It's not. It's yeah. not. It's not as, as prevalent in my mind. The return to loving movies, man. Yeah. Loving the cinema. Yeah. Loving the moment when the cinema goes dark, oh. man, and you get that rush because you're you you're at that moment where you like. This could be a moment that changes my life like heat. Mm. This could be that moment that changes my life, you know, like me watching Excalibur when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> these these movies that you just like, you know, this could be that moment that starts an obsession. Yeah. yeah. Each time you sit and watch a film, whether whether people have called a shit or not, and you just go, "This could be that moment," and that and that's what I love. I love that that's coming through, and I love that the, obviously that we're talking about this because of obviously this is one of the things that Michael Mann does. Yeah. This is one of the things that basically has brought it along. He has a huge. In- he has a huge fan. Like I'm, I'm sure you guys see it online too. But it's like when I started with Heat, it was such a great thing to find that there was a Michael Mann community, and I feel like. Yep even in the last four or five years, it has gone insane. There are just like so many things and so many fan accounts and so many people that engage with online. Like, and it's, and it's all, not toxic. And it's no, it's yeah. all like, it's all it's just, just it's, beautiful. it's beautiful. It's just like everyone. I'm is, on a Reddit, a couple of them. Yeah. Yeah. Just beautiful. The, yeah. Just like so many huge fans. It's like, it's, it's just excellent. Yeah. It's like really, yeah. really great. Can I say uh, it's, I'm really glad you went there, Blake, cause um, we do engage with a few communities in the lead up to like our season starting to, <laughs> to just like get in touch with people. Cause like what I've found is the real diehard fans. Oh, we're not talking Zack Snyder. Oh, 
we will get there, Craig. I'm, I'm leading there. Okay, um, cool. But we had these, like we found that the fans are sometimes the best source of information that we, we don't really yeah. know about. You know, I really wanted for the keep, I tried so hard to find this um, footage of a 1983 interview that Michael Mann did about the behind the scenes of the keep, which is on mm. the, uh, I think it was called the Electric Theatre uh, show. Um, and just couldn't find it anywhere because uh, a few few images and videos have been removed. And then suddenly one of these fans had got in touch with me and said, hey, I've got this awesome video. Do you want it? And it's this interview that I've been itching to find. And so we found that. And the Michael Mann community, even at one stage, I just shared an episode at one point and this guy said, you're not going to do this every week, are you? And I was like, no, nah, man, I just thought this was okay to do. I'm really sorry. And he's like, no, nah, it's all good. I'm really keen to listen, but just don't do it all the time. And I thought, this is so much nicer than the Zack Snyder fans <laughs> who in our second season made sure that they listened to every single episode we did and give us timestamps of every mistake that we made in their mind. <laughs> and awesome. even tried at one point to uh, debate with Craig about the, um, the, the physics and the science behind Superman flying um, just off one statement that Craig made. And it was such an eye-opener at to how... There are still probably those elements of the old school f- internet film community out there that that pop up. As we no, get along, no, they, I think they, that guy they, was they, an outlier. Uh, I think that guy was an outlier. You're you're, yeah. you're talking about <laughs> you're talking about the religiosity of superhero fans. They are different. That's true. They this are is funda- very true. They are fun. They are they are fundamentalists. <laughs> they certainly yeah. are. We are not fundamentalists. No, okay? the, the, I have a Superman no, no, tattoo no, on my arm. No, no, uh, look, I'm I'm a guy who literally has a Bane tattoo, right? Like I'm that guy. So I'm I'm not saying, and you know, and if you look I'm in joking. my if you look in my office, there is so much superhero Batman paraphernalia. I've got a Superman, you know, seventy seven, you know, seventy six, seventy seven poster original on my wall. Like Oof. I'm a big fan of superhero stuff. Um, I'm just saying that you know. Do not negotiate with terrorists, Jeff. What are you doing? <laughs> well, my, you know what I mean? Response, like that, like my just, response that, became that, that, that I, I would so put the uh, the gif of the Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the troll in the dungeon moment. That was just my response in the end because it was just out of control. But yeah. I will say, Blake, uh, they do say no publicity is bad publicity and it ended up being quite helpful for our podcast. So thanks to that listener who drew attention to us in a wonderful way. Look, it's it's weird, and I'm sorry we're totally <laughs> off topic, but it's 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 weird that like these superhero these superhero nerds are so getting to so such a toxic state. I don't think they actually remember what it was like growing up outside of a superhero um, dominated society, where but I, I had but to they're not, order they're not going order to my X Men jumpers, <laughs> yeah, Craig, through yeah, the like, back of a comic book. Yeah, look, like I I remember that time too. I remember only getting like. On the spinner racks at the news yes. agent at freaking Deepwater yeah. Plaza in Woolwey, like there's not exactly a huge comic selection there that my mum would let me purchase. You know, like there's you, you'd get some random stuff, but it's yeah, it's they're just ubiquitous. The people are people are really extremely passionate about it, and I just kind of like I don't have any like, <laughs> and you know what? I really liked Zack Snyder's Justice League. Like, yeah, I we really did too. liked. I loved it. Really liked Army of the Dead. Had a great time with Army of the Dead. I had a, I loved his Dawn of the yeah. Dead. Um, and I even like have a really soft spot for Batman v Superman. I don't like Man of Steel. I think that there's a three minute trailer 
for Man of Steel. It's the third trailer for Man of Steel. Uh, and it's the best Superman movie, <laughs> except for the original <laughs> Superman. That three-minute trailer is the best Superman movie. The actual movie's garbage, but that trailer that Love has it. Russell Crowe doing um, like like doing Jor-El. doing Jarrell and doing the um, I think it's the Grant like it's a Grant Morrison dialogue from All Star Superman that he says that they lifted straight into the script yep. um, is some of the most sublime stuff ever. Three minutes trailer three, look for it, it's great. But no, I I just genuinely um, I've completely disengaged. Like I, I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say about Star Wars. I have nothing to say about superheroes. <laughs> I have nothing to say. I like, if you love it, great. I, I'm just not going to talk about it. You get, I'm love over it. here talking about Zodiac. I'm over here talking about Peter Weir. I'm over here talking yeah. about Michael Mann. Love it. That's what I'm doing. You can, I'm sure there's 1200 shows that are out there yep. watching the Spider-Man far from home trailer. <laughs> and I'm like, good. Congratulations. Like I'm so I'm stoked for you. Look, if you want to see Alfred Molina, like go nuts. I'm just gonna watch him in like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. You know? So like good. I'm good. <laughs> it's huge. So good. <laughs> so good. I am really appreciative of you doing Zodiac Chronicle. I am absolutely loving it, Blake. It is so darn oh, good. It took thank me you, thank you. a good five or six years to get Craig to even watch the movie. So uh Well I'm glad he got, got there. there. I'm glad he got there. I got there. And I did. John and I watched it at the same time and we were both very, very hey, impressed. Yeah. <laughs> can, I, can I take us back a bit? I loved your analogy about being in the orchestra, Blake. So let's yes. take a little moment and just talk the score of this film, uh, mm. which is absolutely stunning. Um, mm. Especially, I was blown away. I'm a very big music nerd. I love doing the music for our delightful show. Um and uh, I think this is really intriguing because, like, my brain again for the first time, I'm listening to the music and going, "Is this the? Um, is this? Where's this going? Am I hearing this for the first time?" And it's this beautiful mix of. It's almost like we're watching the evolution of film score in this film, where we've got elements of those '80s scores from the from Thief and, you know, getting into there's, – there's little hints of Tangerine dreams still floating around in there. Yeah, there's a little bit of that, yeah. But then you have these beautiful moments like that opening um, that opening track that just – on the train station. Uh, I'm a big – they call it shoegaze. It's sort of post-prog rock, um, very <laughs> cinematic. Um, and hearing that opening song – there are so many musical themes that those bands follow. That's the way that it builds. Um, if you, I'm a real big fan of Moneyball. Um, uh, Moneyball's a terrific. Oh, film. isn't oh my it? Goodness, what? Is that a good film? Um, oh my god, is Bennett Miller just a terrific director? That movie is is continually growing in my conception as a as a. As an outstanding movie. 100%. As a director, I'm really excited to see what he does next. I think he's doing a musical next, if I remember rightly. Yeah, uh, I think he did, from memory, was Bennett Miller, the guy he did Doubt, and then he did... uh, He did the Truman Capote. Foxcatcher. Yeah, Foxcatcher. He did the Truman Capote one with, um, was it Philip Seymour? Philip Seymour. Yeah, Um, the king. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I love him. The king. So, um, yeah, but, like, there's a a band called This Will Destroy You who do a lot of the, the score through Moneyball, and you can't hear that opening song. I think it's uh, with the Cronus uh, Quartet do the opening song. Yeah, so Cronus Quartet does it. Um, this score is 
directly credited to Elliot Goldenthal, yep. and he does lots of it. But um, like, there's a Joy to cover. Um, Joy Division cover by Moby, um, uh, New Dawn Fades yep. that like is covered that we've used uh, pretty much for our theme um, for the whole duration of One Heat Minute. Um, Lisa Gerard is someone who Michael Mann uses a lot in uh, The Insider and she starts to bring in some of these other notes and tones and you see him starting to bring that in. And then it's, um, it's not like incidental music, but it's like he starts to, the vibe of this eclectic Los Angeles really starts to come out because yes. like club music and those sorts of things. Um, and then obviously, you know, the, you know, the, the, uh, some really sort of beautiful sort of classical music that gets interweaved in there. But the real, like, you know, the signature of the whole movie is Moby's God moving over the face of waters, yep. um, which Elliot Goldenthal um, which took the place of Elliot Goldenthal's um, score at the time. And um, an interesting fact is Elliot Goldenthal actually won an Oscar for the music he used for Michael Collins, uh, the movie like a couple of years later. And he actually just recycled stuff he'd already created for him for the Michael Collins score (laughs) that wasn't used. And he, so he didn't win anything. Um, But yeah, no, it's Michael Mann's a guy who has always been like weird cutting edge around what he's used for, for movie and, and sound scores. Like he's been a guy that loves remixes and remakes and like tonal shifts in the music. Um, Heat and Miami Vice have a real, um, a real, cool way of having like this cohesive score that is happening throughout, but at the same time, like changing the tone yeah. of the scene, upping tempo, changing musical genres based on the locations. Yeah. And I think he, he sort of experiments with that in heat that gets way better in collateral. It gets way better in Miami vice. Um, so he has that, but he's always been an incredibly intuitive filmmaker when it comes to music, just knows what he likes. Um, has been a, a weird guy in his life that used to have a wall of CDs in his office, like an entire <laughs> wall and was the guy who just voraciously consumed music and always thinking about oh, for a project or this or that, or temper with this. And, um, yeah, he's that kind of guy. That's just his, that's his, uh, that's his bag. But yeah, no, it's an incredible score. It's really, Really oh, interesting. So yeah, really. So that so that score, like obviously that that underlying score, what you said is that that that's a Moby portion, is it? Oh, so like you've got Ellie. Yeah. So that that final score, that like dun 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 that like for that climactic moment, that's a Moby song called "God Moving Over the Face of Waters." Elliot Goldenthal is doing the interstitials, like the bits where like that sort of. They're really, in the bank. Yeah, they're they're oh no, not in the bank. In the bank is um uh there's there's so like it's like a really eclectic. Yeah, that like there's Brian Eno tracks in here, <laughs> yeah. there's William Orbit really? tracks in here. Yeah. There's uh all, um there's like Lisa Gerard's got like four tracks in here. Um yep. and yeah, so there's lots like it's Elliot Goldenthal has just stitched these together. Like he's he's just like helping them flow. And the other thing in heat that happens is that music goes away. Yeah, very much. Sometimes there's not music. Uh, And when there is, it's kind of like usually with momentum, but there is stillness that is allowed to happen in the movie and and these little, you know, kind of sparse longing notes. Um, But yeah, like there's, it's a very, like, you don't even notice it, but it's like this eclectic thing of like um, that, that it's, it's so rich and weird and there's lots of different tracks and then there's kind of, it all pulls back. Um, 
uh, to the bigger the bigger ones, you know, that you hear the Joy Division <laughs> cover, the 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 Moby, the Elliot Goldenthal. I love it. It wasn't until oh, I looked at awesome. the actual like the track listing on the soundtrack that say if I was to go on and buy the CD version of it, uh, or I'd love to get a hold of the vinyl actually, um, that you go, wow, this is this is really quite eclectic. But as you said, it really does it flows so perfectly through the film. And um, yeah. and I love that you you drew the attention to the fact that at some point there's actually no score at all. Like the diner moment between uh, Pacino and De Niro sitting in there, which is so perfect because it's almost like about ninety to eighty ninety to ninety six, <laughs> eighty ninth minute where Pacino walks up to the car. Love it. Which which again, that. like watching Thief for the first time. I couldn't help but be like, oh, flip a stick. This is like literally training ground for what we're going to get later. You, yeah. You know, that beautiful scene yeah. between James Kahn and... Um, and Tuesday yeah. Well. Tuesday Well. That's a, that's a great... I. There is so... F- that's what I love about the thief scene and the heat scene. <laughs> and it's like, it's like a different riff on the same idea, which is... Isn't it nice when people are just honest with each yeah. other? Yeah. Like in movies? Yep. You know? Um Bill Gerberi says something so funny. He's a terrific film critic. He used to be the tr- film critic for The Village Voice. He's just an outstanding critic for New York Magazine or Vulture, if you read him online. He's one of the funnest, great film critics out there. And I'm very happy to know him as a friend. But he was just like, he says this f- favorite thing about this sentiment, right? Like people having candid conversations in movies that actually talk about character motivations that are very candid with each other. It's like no, no hiding. He's like, Blake, this guy's talking about turning away when you spot the heat around the corner. Don't get fucking coffee with him. Like, don't get coffee with the heat, you know? Like, you're sitting in front of the heat. Yeah. Like, it's not around the corner anymore. It's right in front of you. And so that's what's great about the Tuesday World scene with James Kahn and Thief is it's like, I'm a thief. I don't want to muck around. I feel like we've got a relationship here. Yeah. And he just is, like, naked and candid. And that's why I think that scene is, like the like, apart from all the other great, you know, uh, technical thief stuff in Thief yep. and the great, you know, tough guy stuff from Khan and the great performances by the cops and the crooks, which is just Prosky. Oh, so stunning. Oh, Prosky. <laughs> what a king. What a, like, man, the, the world, the world is so much better for Prosky coming into cinema. But like, it's that scene where a real man and a woman have a candid, almost real authentic conversation in a movie about, I don't want to muck around. I don't want the movie relationship. I don't, I'm a man. You're a woman. (laughs) You like me. I like you. Let's go. Like, I love that. Like, I love how candid that is because it's so counterintuitive to what we've come to expect from movies. These like when Harry met Sally, perfection, meet cute, 10 years long friendship. Will they, won't they like, I'm a man. You're a woman. (laughs) You like me. Let's go. Like, I love it. It's also that. It's also that that boring thing where, oh no, they're going to find out, and then it's going to add yeah. the extra tension to it. I remember James Khan actually. There's an interview with James Khan where he talks about that scene being one of his favorite ever scenes. Oh, he's just James Khan in that period. So like, I mean, obviously he's working with people like Pacino and De Niro and all that sort of stuff, Godfather. But yeah. man, all the movies he did around that period, The Gambler. Um, like, uh, he, he's just, you know, this thief, he, man, there was a period there where he was just on absolute fire as well. So good at that time of his career. He was just brilliant. Yeah. Like brilliant, brilliant. Oh, he was a perfect, it was that perfect tough guy oh. without being, without being the, the dolt. Yeah. There was something that, that was street intelligent yeah. about yeah. him. 
that was always brought him out. And I look, and, and admittedly, he never really strayed too far from Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think, but there was a reason well, why Sonny you never strayed Sonny's. too far from him. <laughs> great, great. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. That's actually yeah. very true. Because the guy is a tough guy in real life. Yeah. You know, he was a black belt, karate, um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu he's done. His son does Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well. Um, you know, these guys, he's just naturally a guy who'd fuck you up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do love to. Like, it sort of dawned on me watching the diner scene again with a total different lens on. Suddenly I realized I'm like... It's almost like we're watching the culmination. We've talked a bit as well, Blake, that there's almost like this weird, um, this shared universe that Michael Mann's created, which it's so lived in that you could actually imagine every film so far has taken place within the same world. I guess that's a a sign that there's a great director there putting his mark on everything that he's working on. Um, But it's almost like we're watching James Kahn meeting uh, Will, uh, uh, Will Graham, you know, in the diner and the culmination of those two characters. And it's like, they're both characters we love. Like, who? what are we going to do when we put them together? Will they respect each other? Will they just go at it? And again, there's such tension in that moment. It's just such fantastic, fantastic yes. writing, fantastic directing, fantastic acting. And I love the fact that, like, they actually hadn't met until that moment on screen, physically, the actors. Uh, it's just so freaking good. I, I think also that's that's another thing that is overlooked from the whole portion of it is, is his casting. And obviously it's easy to cast those guys and get people. Out, but the way he holds that back because each actor brings so much lack of a better word, baggage. Let's just say experience. Sorry, that's probably a better word. They bring so much life and so much cinema to each one. Like very similar to what we were talking about earlier. Like, you know, you look at something and there's so much around it. You know, you look at De Niro, you look at uh, Pacino and you see all your love for movies in just in these people. That's why it's so hard sometimes to watch their latest movies. <laughs> but, you know, like bad grandparents. But you, you see them. You I was trying to imagine what extension to the house he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's Michael Caine. Talking this. about honestly, I love John Malkovich was always very honest about it. Like they asked him about Con Air and he goes, oh, I just bought a house in France and I wanted to pay it off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the greatest uh, but, answer of all time. And, 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 but that's, what's good is, is that, and he holds that back, but you don't have to do much. And like you're saying, like I'm like I've never seen LA Takedown, but you're saying it's the same dialogue and stuff like that. But bringing in these amazing yep. actors just adds that level where it's just your heart's beating. Where if it was just two normal people coming to in a normal scene you'd just be like oh cool this is just a scene where they meet up it's very kitschy and stuff but these two giants you're just like your heart beats quicker every time i see it you see them coming my heart beats quicker because you start to watch them more you watch their facial features you watch the the wry smiles that they can't help but give each other you know because these are almost brothers you know what i mean it, it, it's it's just one of those moments and 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 like i said as so i just the love the acting portion of it is they're so restrained it's just i just seriously it's it, it sends tingles up my whole body i fucking love it <laughs> uh, it, I, I i love i love these guys in this scene and i 
Um, you th- you mentioned Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and James Khan like beating him up. I remember I was doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu just before my daughter was born, and um, I had this great professor, Professor Fabio. When you roll with him, he was like a, a double black belt or something, or black belt. Where'd you train at? I was training at Gracie Baja in St. Peter's at the time. Um, oh, really? Yeah. That's my brother. My brother trained there. I I trained under um, the Machado brother. Yeah, oh, awesome. So I was down in St. Peter's training there. Um, and uh, when I train with my professor and he'd be rolling around and I get to him and he go, Oh, Blake, how are you? I'm like, good. <laughs> he goes, he goes, all right, shall I do the countdown? And I'm like, no, professor don't. And he'd go, all right, here we go. And we'd start rolling. He'd go 10, nine. All right. And he'd just count down. And within 10 seconds, I'd be submitted or I would be tapping out. Right? You'd be in a table. Uh, whatever it was, I was a white belt and he would just play with me and just toy with me. And what I think, I think about that so much when I watch that scene, because when you watch, there is so much command of every single gesture, glance, yep. uh, movement, uh, the subtlety and the nuance of every re- action and reaction, the way that, emotions flutter through faces and go into eyes that I'm like, I genuinely think that should be studied. Um, These guys are bringing 40 years of their career. They do this. It's take 11. Um, They're there doing this scene together and it's just utter perfection. And it's, that's the thing that strikes me every time that I watch it too, Craig. I'm so glad you said it because it's just like, I am just flabbergasted that, they're so good. Like yep. there are conversations that happen in movies all the time. Everyone talks at a freaking diner. Even in the movie I'm currently doing Zodiac, there's a couple of great diner scenes. Yep. Um, one of them is one of the climactic moments of the movie. Um, and it's like, there are wonderful diner scenes, but there are so few in my mind that even, and you know, thieves actually one of them, but so few that even could possibly compare with the technical skill of just using this instrument, which is their face to tell the entire life story of a character in really what is under seven minutes. And it's just so profound and I just can't get over it. Like if I had any, you know, if I was ever being putting a teacher hat on, it is like this to study and to document the way that you are feeling about how those characters are feeling are a, a doorway, a, a, like a rabbit hole to pour into with like all these different theories about like actors, gestures and what they mean, because these guys are just, they have it on a string and there are so many other actors. I just don't even know that they even have the skills that these guys have in this moment. But at this moment in their lives, at this time of their careers, they have it on a string and they have a flow yep. that any other actor in front of them would be counting down to 10 because they just wouldn't last <laughs> in the scene, you know? It's it's beautiful, and the way that you bring up jujitsu is very it's very very it's very very true. It's and it's one of the things is obviously when you do roll with people, the better they are, the simpler it looks. Yes. Yet the more complicated yeah. it is. You know, it's like um, let's say for so to put it in the total nerd, but is when you see um, Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the simplest gesture, but he can do the biggest things, yeah. and this is what and this is what. A lesser director would have tried to play up their yep. big scenes. You know what I mean? They, they, and and it's funny considering, you know, um, Pacino's whole character 
you know, is one of just, he's a bombast, bombastic character, you know what I mean? He explodes, you know, or as he said once in one of his interviews, that he he, he wishes that Michael Mann kept in that he was a, he was a cocaine fiend. Um, but... I, I agree with Michael Mann totally that you don't need nah. it. Not at all. Yeah, it doesn't it, help. It, it, it adds to the wackiness because he, he, he's wacky because of of he's, he's just single-minded, he's focused. But to see these actors together and not make them yell at each other and not make them do their, you know, because they're both fearsome when they're being intimidating. In this moment, they're not. Because they don't need to be. There's, there's no, the, he, it's, he, like, it's respect. It's, it's, yeah, it's respect. Exa- exactly. It's not, it's not, it's not a white belt. <laughs> trying to pump myself, <laughs> pump myself up people. for a black belt. Like yeah. it's, it's two black belts. They don't need to. And the other thing I would just say, cause I know that people listening probably like, Oh, you know, like, you know, Blake said it's a perfect movie. How could you watch it 200 times? Al Pacino, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, whatever. Like there's the criticism that Vincent Hanna goes over the top. My only, my only response to that is just watch the scenes that he's going over the top and tell me what's happening. Totally. In every scene, Vincent Hanna is going off his rocker. He's having a fight with his with his lady yep. after he's just discovered a stone cold murder scene that he's probably not going to solve. Yep. Tell me if you've ever had a fight with your wife and been rational, <laughs> um, yep. or a partner, yep. and you've been a rational human being. And the two are when he's intimidating criminal informants. Yep. And it throws him off. And, it's, and it throws it's him off the character. Part of it is that unpredictable nature where he's trying to throw people off. And whenever he's encountering his peers, it's direct, it's minimalistic dialogue, it's laconic, it's fast, <laughs> it's second nature. Yep. Um, there's no goodbyes. There's no goodbyes. <laughs> my favorite. Is, I'm never cool enough to do that. I will say that on every show I about him. I love that too. It's my favorite that thing. Too. Oh, that's wonderful. Hang the phone. <laughs> like I've never been that cool in my exactly. life. I've never been that cool in my life. I wish that I could be that cool. But um, yeah, so I would just say that that's part of it, right? It's part of the whole totally. thing. So I don't think he needs the cocaine. I could totally accept that he's an addict. I don't need to see it. I feel like his mania is um, all part of the performance. But he's not going to do that with Neil. Neil Neil's never going to... Neil's not going to respond. He respects him so yeah. much when he walks into that scene that he's not going to he's not going to try and intimidate Neil because he's like this guy's good. He all he said is this crew is good. Look at this guy. Oh, kid, would you look at this guy? Would you look at this guy? You know, like, you know, um look how smart he is to figure that. Like Nate's already told him. Like he knows that that's what's already happening. I so, yeah, I I I I that scene. They're two black belts. Yeah, right now and they just it's just beautiful to watch. Just study it. It's so oh, it's great. Like so speaking, obviously, of the acting, obviously, in this film, and, and the two are very, very straight to the point. You know, one of the most amazing things was is you had two actors on there who have a reputation to be just wild on set. Mm. So we're talking Tom Sizemore. <laughs> okay. Now, these people have the history. They've, they, they keep after this, they keep the history. But I guess when you have these Pacino and De Niro on set, these guys are very much kept in tow in a way, mm. you know, and and it also, it brings out what I think would be some of their best performance. I would sort of like, Sizemore, I loved him just as much in Saving Private Ryan. Mm. But in this film, he plays that hardened criminal so well. Like it's like, there's, there's no more scene that sums up Tom Sizemore as a brilliant character actor than the moment where they smack Wangro's head oh, yeah. <laughs> in the table. <laughs> into, into the into the table. The, gra- the, 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 the greatest, the, I think, 
we coined it on the show as the greatest. What the fuck are you looking yeah. at? <laughs> Gays <laughs> of all time. Yeah, like like <laughs> and and um yeah, look, uh Kilmore's a wild one. Um terrific doco on Amazon Prime if you want to check it out, Val about so his life. Oh, is it good? It's wonderful. Yeah, you can check it out now. Like it's around. Um I only very recently checked it out myself. Um Kilmer is a guy who has always yearned to act in big, in either big roles or with big people that he admires. And he's most, the person he admired the most in his entire life is Brando. Like he went and studied, (laughs) he went and studied at the actor's studio. And so like these guys, like coming into a Michael Mann movie with Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, especially after the, the slog of Batman, like he, he was, he was joyful. He was so relieved to be there, to be a performer and to be able to act. And I, I genuinely think this is, Bar none, his best performance. I think his funnest performance is Tombstone, but his best performance. Oh, I love his Tombstone. Be, his be, That's my His best performance is, in my mind, is Christian Hellas. Christian Hellas is a tragic character in this movie yes. in a way that is so profound that I think it will knock your socks off. I've talked for so many hours on it. I could talk for so many more. <laughs> um, and and yeah. I, I genuinely love him. And I think that, you know, Tom Sizemore is a guy who, you know, there were wild rumors even on the set of Heat and some wild rumors on his last day of what he got up to. And I, I don't know how much of that is true or if it's apocryphal. But again, I think when you anchor a movie, this is why some great movies, I mean, surprise, surprise, you hire incredible actors and the script is good and the director's great and it attracts other great actors who just want to come and play. Like yeah. they don't necessarily have a huge role, but it's like, wait, holy shit. Do you have Al Pacino and Robert De Niro on this thing? Oh, let's go. Like I'm in like, like how, wh- where do I sign? And I think that that's, what's beautiful about both eclectic crews. You know, you got Ted Levine, Michael T. Williamson, Wes Studi, and then you got Pacino. And then on this other crew, you've got like Danny Trejo in his first role yep. playing a character named after his uncle who helped Michael Mann film Jericho Marl, like Gilbert Trejo. Yeah, wow. And you've got like him. Then you've got obviously Val Kilmer. Then you've also got Michael Trito, um, uh, like Tom Sizemore's character. Um, and and then you've got Kevin Gage who comes in as the wild card who's just outlandishly great. And uh, and then you've got Nate, like John Voight. Yeah, totally. It's like these guys all like doing the, his best Eddie Bunker. And you got all these guys and I, I just like, that's what I love about, that's what I think is missed when we talk about like those great movies. What's great about those movies from the nineties, those crime movies that just like were made for adults and just aren't there anymore. I genuinely think it's like being able to hire like not two good actors and then a bunch of garbage, like 30 good actors yeah, and people who might come in for a day and then say, see ya. But, oh, cool. I'd like to be in a movie with these guys. Um, yeah. So I, that's what I marvel at. I think both of them, are so great. And like even Dennis Haysbert, like Dennis Haysbert's story is something that like touches me so much in this movie. Oh my God. Which one's Dennis Haysbert? Dennis Haysbert is the driver who works at the shitty fast food place, um, who comes into the movie, who knows Neil from Folsom. Yep. Um, and, and decides to take over driving duties and is battling through like the American, prison industrial complex basically and is like an african-american avatar for that entire tragic situation and is trying to battle his way out and bloody bud court god damn it bud court is his jerk of a manager stealing his (laughs) and and being a total shitbag of a boss um yeah like i just i i love every i love everyone in this movie like everyone in this movie and i think it's genuinely because of like the like 
Man sets the tone. Yeah. Pacino and De Niro come in and they're his guys and they completely come in lockstep with him. And it is just, I need to absolutely deliver on every single scene that I'm yep. in. And like the Judds and the Dime Venoras too are so important and the Amy Brennamans. But like everyone is like firing on all cylinders in this movie. Everyone. And I love that you say it, Blake, because there literally isn't, you know, most movies you can pick one or two people that you're like, you are out of your depth, buddy. You know, like, like, are you get yeah, here, are buddy. you related to the producer? How did you get there? But like, everyone really is like, uh, I think through the whole thing, and I think man knows that everyone's at the top of their game at this stage. Like, when you watch, just to go back to the diner scene, like it ends almost like a spotlight fade done by the sound. Like the sound of the diner is just brought up in such a way. It's like there's the yeah. fade spotlight, you know, like it's so yeah. <laughs> wonderful. And it's actually funny. Um, like my wife and I've been on a little run watching musicals at the moment. So I've, I've actually, she's a dancer and um, I'm falling in love with Gene Kelly. And, and um, <laughs> seriously, as you yes. should, Seriously, the ease in which he can dance and sing, he makes Frank Sinatra look like this weird ratty sidekick, you know? And, and <laughs> hey, 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 don't say that. Don't say that. Don't, no, no, no. Don't you knock Francis uh, out. I'm sorry, Craig. I'm sorry, Craig. But, but Frank like, Sinatra is what we were talking about earlier, what he does with his voice. That's his own. Uh, I'm instrument. coming. We're, you need to appreciate We're in Frank the middle Sinatra. of Anchors Away at the moment, <laughs> and I'm starting to really enjoy Frank Sinatra through Anchors Away. Two Oscars. Uh, Two Oscars, but, man. Frank Sinatra oh, has. Oh, Craig is getting these back up. <laughs> sorry. Watch out. Sorry. He's, 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 he's fired up. I've Please hit, go a, hit a point. Sorry, I get the same way when people talk bad about Rain of Fire, so uh, don't worry. Um, <laughs> sorry, mate. But, like, what I love in it is that everyone just is performing with such ease. And it's like, it just kept, I keep thinking, it's like when I watch Gene Kelly dance, it's like, it's just him doing what is natural to him. It's so easy. And at no point am I looking at the person to the left and going, oh mate, you're just counting the steps right now, trying to keep up with this guy. <laughs> you know, they're, they're all, they're all performing so well. And like I said, I think the diner scene really shows that man knows that he's getting that because the sound coming up, it's just like, seriously, that's so perfect. Um, and we've got to say that Pacino and De Niro were announced when heat was announced. So it's like mm. from the get go, everyone knows you've got these Titans on board for this project um, coming out of his yeah. work on the James Dean biopic. So uh, obviously, because Blake, you obviously you know all that, and Jeff's your research is to me just being the monkey. <laughs> is um, why did they choose this film? Uh, so Michael Mann had come off Mohicans and was had had been tinkering and toiling away at Heat. Heat was a film script long before it was even LA Takedown. Yeah. It was it was gestating for decades, based off of a real story from a Chicago cop named Charlie Adamson who met a real guy named Neil McCauley and had a cup of coffee with him and had a version of this conversation as the sort of inciting incident. And Michael Mann mm. heard that story through Charlie Adamson was like, that's the coolest fucking thing I've ever heard. And went home as a filmmaker and a screenwriter and started creating this world. And it was originally going to be set in Chicago. And anyway, he was tinkering away at it for a long time, tried to make it happen. There's different elements of it thematically, things like that, that have popped up in a whole bunch of his other works, like direct scenes, lines of dialogue, etc. Anyway, he's tinkering on it after Mohicans and um, 
he was talking to his friend Art Linson. Art Linson himself, if you guys like it's A-R-T-L-I-N-S-O-N, is a famous Hollywood producer. Yep. Has a great book, um, is has been around and at the time Michael was working with him, Mr. Michael Mann, and he um was like, Oh, I'm working on this script for Heat and I'm I'm just gonna give it to someone. I want the script to be done and I'm gonna let someone else direct it. And he he'd kind of gotten it to the point where he was happy. And Art Linson read the script and goes, Are you insane? Like, this is amazing. Like, you can't let anyone else direct this. So you're a lunatic. This should, like, forget anything else you're doing. This should be the next project that you're doing. Like, this is the project. And so Art Linson then gave the script to De Niro. Um, wow. With, with, a, with a caveat of you can be whichever role you want. And Oh, wow. And De Niro chose Macaulay. And then it was like a conversation then of like, oh, no, you should get Al. Al should be the other guy. And then so basically <laughs> then Pacino reads it. And then once those guys are hooked, it's like a $60 million budget um, for the film at the time. Love I it. believe the whole budget was around 50 or 60. Yep. And, um, and so then they, they just, once those two guys were attached, it's just like off to the races. Yeah. And so uh, it, that's how it bloomed. But it was it was something that had gestated for a long time. There was a real man named Neil McCauley who was gunned down by Charlie Adamson in Chicago. He was a career criminal and a thief. Um, and, and yeah, there are so many of those sort of like real Chicago elements, um, you know, different crews who are mentioned. Um, uh, you know, John Voight's character is a direct ripoff of Eddie Bunker, like the real guy who, whose book Straight Time, Dustin Hoffman adapted, and Michael Mann worked on the screenplay yep. for that. At one time, Michael Mann was going to direct it. Um, and Eddie Bunker. This is Eddie Bunker from Reservoir Dogs. Eddie Bunker Dogs. from Reservoir Dogs is a real yep. author. Um, he wrote a great book called No Be uh, No Be So Fierce, which is about his time as like a a hustler and a fixer and how to get in and out of prison and and those sorts of things. But <laughs> but yeah, like that that that. It just kind of all gestated like that. And then at the time, it was just, you know, um, it was then just, it's a much easier sell to be like, we've got a, a crime movie, <laughs> an LA crime epic that's going to feature these two guys. Yep. And people would just jump. And it was a Warner Brothers thing and Michael Mann. And they've got such a history with directors and just started jumping on board as quickly as possible. Love it. Look, I'm not sure if I'm going crazy, but I saw a Fox logo and then Warner Brothers. You're watching the director's definitive edition. So the home entertainment yes. um, home entertainment rights of Heat now belong to 20th Century Fox. Which now belong to, obviously, Now belong Disney. to Disney, yeah. Wowzers. Wow, that's a confusing freaking. Yeah, look, <laughs> I mean, I'm all for the Heat cinematic universe if they um, want to get going and hurry up and sort it out. Michael Mann's in his The HCU. Hey, um, I'm in. But he, he's written a book or been working on a book as a sequel to Heat, hasn't he, Blake? Am I right in in that, Michael Mann? Yes, a a Heat prequel novel. Okay, how do I say this? Who has? Who Michael has? Mann's been writing it. writing uh, a novel as a as a follow-up to Heat. Or a prequel. Awesome. No, not uh, – it's – okay. So at the time I awesome. recorded the final episodes of Heat, One Heat Minute rather, um, I spoke to Reed Farrell Coleman, who's the New York Times – he's a New York Times bestselling author. And at the time he was co-writing a Heat sequel prequel novel about how – the events that brought Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley to each other in LA, Neil's time in Chicago, 
Oh, oh no, sorry. Um, Vincent's time in Chicago, Neil's time on the West Coast in San Francisco, developing as a thief, going to prison, etc. And then would also continue on traveling through times to maybe some things that happened after he. And as much as I can say um, is that, I mean, if there are any survivors after that heist, maybe Vincent would encounter them on a later <laughs> investigation of some kind. Catches Val Kilmer about to surf at Bell's Beach, Australia. Yeah, that's that's about <laughs> as close as I could say anything. Um, I don't think Reed is continuing to write that, uh, co-write the novel. I know that a heck of a lot of work has been done on it and I don't exactly know where it's up to at the moment. Um, uh but you can be sure that as soon as the novel comes out, one heat minute, we'll have a whole stack more episodes. Um, probably, <laughs> probably love it. Probably chapter, probably chapter by chapter through that book. The, don't give away your content. Um, <laughs> no, I, but but I'm just saying, if you want to do another heat podcast, I mean, it's <laughs> oh, been done. Man, that's it's awesome. That's awesome to hear. That'd be very interesting. Yeah, look, actually, I'm, so. look, as a person who, I mean, I'm not sure. I don't know what I can and can't say. As a person who may or may not have heard or seen some things, or may or may not have seen some pages of the novel or may or may not have been speaking in detail to read about <laughs> some of the things that may or may not have been happening in some iteration of the book. Yeah. Um, I was extremely excited. Well, Hannah so would have good. obviously because I assume because Hannah was originally built for a TV series, mm. he would have a lot more, he would have a lot more stories in the mind, obviously, Michael Mann would have a lot more stories about him in his mind. Yeah, the backstories were really rich. Like, so you hear John Voight's and Nate say he took down Frankie Unger and his crew in Chicago in heat. He says yeah, that yeah. to Neil um, as sort of evidence that the Frankie Unger crew was like this badass crew who were really good and that Hannah took them down. And so I believe, I think it's pretty much out there that like that was kind of the build up. It was going to be about Hannah taking down this other extremely formidable crew leading him up to that. And then more about Neil's philosophy. Like was Neil a cowboy before he turned into this sort of monk like, um, you know, samurai Ronin guy um, later on, maybe. Um, and then the, the continuity of like what happens afterwards. And, um, you know, that one person left alive, you know, what, what happens to Chris Shahilis, you know, like that's a big unanswered question. Um, and so I think that the book was probably going to deal with that. Um, so yeah, no, amazing. Um, Love it. Um, I, I I I would have loved to see how it actually turned out, but also at the same time, um, I'm not an. This is where I think uh, to to cycle back to something we talked about before with like superhero f- fanboys and their entitlement about things that they deserve to see or not see or read or not read. I am so immensely grateful that I have heat. <laughs> I don't need anything. Like if they make me more of it, oh. I w- if they make me more of it in some way, shape or form, I will be extremely grateful. But at the same time, I'm like, I have 166 minutes of heat. The- well, there's, there's also, you don't need to know more. No. You know, there's a part of it that it, it grows more in, grows more in you when you, when you, your imagination attaches to something. Yeah. Like it's one of those funny things is one of those movies is ironically a scent of a woman. So, 
Al Pacino, I always imagined Al Pacino's character before he went blind. Uh, you know, because he was this, you know, this hardcore special forces guy who used to fucking juggle grenades. Um, <laughs> and to me, every time I watch that movie, I always go, man, he would have been a hard ass when he had fucking... And I, 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 I drift into that world of wonder what he'd be like and stuff like that. But I don't need to know more. They only touch on bits of it and stuff oh, throughout Scent of a Woman. I agree. And, and those are the things I don't need. I don't need to know anything apart past when now holding hands you know what i mean at the end of heat here you know that these two these two people have met and they're holding hands i don't need to know much more about apart from my own imagination no i because if mm. i i don't want to know yeah I, I mean in some way like i'm gonna read <laughs> yeah. it like, just like that's i'm gonna Same. i'm gonna re- <laughs> like, Stupid, like i'm gonna read it of course I'm going to, right? Like, so anyone's listening, of course I'm going to read it. Of course I'm going to consume it. Of course I'm going to, if Michael Mann says that he's been given a stack, a pile of money from HBO Max to turn the the treatment or whatever that they've got into a TV series, I'm going to watch The Living Daylights out of it. Probably going to try and talk to Michael Mann again. Anyone who's playing Vincent Hanna or Christian Hellas or any of those characters that are going to reappear, I'm going to talk to them. I'm, they're, they're going to be on an extended show. It's going to happen. So there you go. It's done. Like, let's forget it. Love it. However, Lock it in. But, it's done. It's all. It's over. I've already said it. I've already committed to that. If you go back to heat, I'm doing it. That's what. That's the only way the show is happening again. If that's what happens. Um, well, here's a horrible question for you, Blake. Who's playing out? Who's playing um Hannah? Oh, this was easy ten years ago. It's Oscar Isaac yeah. for Hannah, and it's John Bernthal for Macaulay. Oh, wow. Easy. Fuck. Sort it. Oh damn it, man! I thought I had a sold it. I thought sold, I got you on that sold, question. Sorted, finished. I don't know now. I don't know now. I, I, my fun game is a fun game, Craig, for you and Jeff and and your brother was John, right? Yeah. Go yep. back and cast me heat in eighty five, not ninety five. Go eighty five, then go seventy five, then go two thousand and five. Go on to because that's hard. Guys, that's on, hard. Like when you then go on to Reddit. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's called a. There's a subreddit called Fancast, yeah. and they do exactly. Yeah, the same I love thing. that. Like, but I, I like to go back to seventy five because then you like when you're in the realm of seventy fives, you're at, you know, obviously you've got like young De Niro's and stuff like that. But then it starts to be like, oh, well, maybe this is a Steve McQueen and Paul Newman movie, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> right? like that's that's like that, and and then when you go to like I don't know, like in two thousand and five. Um, it's in 2005, it's harder. It's almost like, Oh, is this an Affleck and Damon movie? Like maybe. And then like has a little bit of that goodwill hunting sprinkling through it together. I don't know. Maybe they're the biggest, maybe it is like a Brad Pitt V Leo movie. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, um, they're, they're my fun ones to play fan cast is like oh, trying to cast it. it in the past and the future. And, and <laughs> Harrison Ford witness. Type yeah. Program. Look, absolutely. If you go back to the 85s, maybe it's a Harrison Ford. I just don't know who's going to go against Harrison at that stage. Maybe it's Harrison Ford or Redford. Maybe they're Ooh. close enough. I don't Ooh. know. That's, yeah. Could have did Redford and Newman. That would have been a good yeah. collection again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Could, Playing could on Michael the, Douglas yeah, play a part with cylinders. Harrison Ford? Oh, look, that's good. But He'd have to get his dick out around that time. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, 80, the 85 one would have um, uh, Douglas as Hannah. Douglas is Hannah, and absolutely, he and Justine would have wild, like, oiled up sex <laughs> at some sex, some part of the movie for no reason. Um, <laughs> at least that blue hue could be coming back over that that sex scene. 
Yeah, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> let's get the blue from Manhunter back. I um, love but it. Yeah, no, like, so I, I played the... Adam Dryer. Played, yeah, look, there's another one. There's another guy you could you could try and pair up with someone who is his equal and his peer at his age. But yeah, there's lots of fun. There's lots of fun games to play like that. So good. Fun. I could sit and play that game all day, but let's go on. Yeah, yeah please. <laughs> uh, I am wary of Blake's time as well. So just sing out if you need to start wrapping things up, Blake, because let's yeah, be no, honest, Craig and I, we could just jabber on all night about something that we love. Hey. Um, yeah. Look, um, I've spent 120 recorded hours or more of talking about heat. So I love it. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is, this is just dandy. This is just fine. <laughs> Oh man, I love your knowledge on it. Hey, it's 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 pretty damn. It's just fucking awesome. It, it is. <laughs> yeah. I just love. Um, it. I'd love you to be a little part of of a chat as well. Um, a bit later, Blake, which is we we actually rank the films throughout the director's career as we go along. So we we mm-hmm. it's pretty clear where this is going to sit. But um, but like a real interesting thing is you know at one point do you think that. That does Craig think that Thief is a better film than Manhunter? You know, and you start when we did our Robert Zemeckis season, it was really quite challenging to start thinking, well, do I think Forrest Gump's a better movie than Back to the Future? Or where does Who yeah. Framed Roger Rabbit fit in all this um, this stuff? So we'll do that. But I'd love to, to know, um, as we're moving forward, we've got The Insider next week, which we're really excited to, to jump onto. Um, yeah. And we're going in very, like, I'm going to be honest. I haven't seen Black Hat. Um, I've probably seen Public Enemies once. Um, I love that I, I, my research has shown how much of a muse like Charlie Adamson is for Michael Mann in these sort of um, films so much that Public Enemies is is dedicated to him later on um, after his passing then. But, um, you know, we saw elements of Thief, Manhunter that all pop up to come together for Heat. How much of Heat are we to expect in those future films that we're moving into now or does? Um, Cause I guess for Craig and I, we were a bit, ex- our expectations early in the season were that we were just going to get this crime director that constantly just made crime films, but we've sort of been a bit surprised by how versatile he is at this stage of his career yeah. to go from thief to the keep, then from Manhunter to last of the Mohicans, okay. you know? So, um, I don't know what what do you think we can expect post heat. I mean, it's impossible after you make heat. Impossible. Yeah. That when you make a crime film, it's not compared to heat. Yeah. <laughs> heat is maybe in the top five crime films ever. Yeah. I would put it in the top heist film ever made. Yep. There's no other better heist films. There are great heist films. And I'm a heist film enthusiast too. But there are no better heist films than Heat. That's it. It's finished. Um, so I think what you can expect is another really wonderful, different, contrasting portrait of LA with Collateral. More so than a crime film. Yep. But what you can really see is that Heat is one of the last expressions of crime on a localized level that Michael Mann does. What you start to see is him extrapolating crime of like, he starts to ask the question, who is pulling the strings? And that comes in public enemies. It comes in collateral. It comes in Miami Vice very specifically um, because he starts to tinker with the idea. And then in Blackout, it's like there are international interests that are controlling 
localized versions of crime. There's not this, there are very rarely these cowboy um, interests and, and in public enemies, <laughs> it's such a great direct conflict of like, you've got John Dillinger as like public enemy number one, this localized interest. And there's actually big criminal organizations with gambling and prostitution who are like, hey, we make more money in a morning than you could ever make in a year robbing banks if you robbed every bank in the country. Um, can you please stop robbing banks because you're creating more <laughs> attention for the criminal enterprise, right? Like stop <laughs> effing around and screwing this up for us. And so I think that that's what you can expect. You can see it go from local to global in his concept of what criminality is and how it works and trying to like, he really has this great way of like having like a telescopic adjustment of going from like, what is the micro? What happens on the local level to the macro? These figures that yep. are potentially pulling some strings, which is great. And and sometimes it's their indirect conflict and sometimes they're being hunted down and trying to connect the dots. Um, so that's what you can expect there. But one thing I would say to folks, and not many people like realize this because I, you know, we've got this ongoing sort of monthly podcast, Miami Nice. We've got, you know, we've done the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, obviously one heat minutes, our big show. But I genuinely have told people at a time in my life, The Insider was my favorite Michael Mann movie. Yes. Like I love heat. It is my favorite, but I, this is what I would say. Cause this is the other part. This is the lunatic fundamentalist end of the Michael Mann fan base. You're going straight. You're running straight towards them. So welcome. Right. <laughs> awesome. All I'm saying to you is you're going to watch the insider and you're going to head towards black hat. And there are people out there who are like black hats amazing. Right. And I don't, I don't love black hat. It's got some good stuff in it, but it's not as a cohesive picture. I don't like it that much. I think Public Enemies is deeply underrated. It's very, very good. I think Miami Vice is outstanding. I think Collateral is brilliant. Um, you know, I think Ali is a, it's just oh, another wonderful film. But The Insider <laughs> is so stupidly good that again, it's a movie that will just that like Heat. Uh, I would say if you're heading towards it, you will if you were already shocked at the versatility that you've seen with Heat. Heat is an expression of crime cinema of someone who knows, um, who is as obsessed as the characters that are creating and therefore has got an insight into it that is just like unparalleled. The Insider is Michael Mann's most truest expression of his socio-political self, which is a guy who grew up in Vietnam the same time all those great filmmakers that you love grew up and is expressing his paranoia journalism film, um, but in a contemporary context, but he's making it like... It would aptly sit on a shelf with network and and all the president's men and then the insider. Oh. Like that is a that is a trilogy of films that could totally stand toe to toe, shoulder to shoulder together. No offense, Spotlight, but Spotlight couldn't shine the shoes of any of those movies in my mind. And it's one best picture. Yep. So, you know, like and Spotlight's a good movie, but it couldn't shine, you know get your shine box, right? Like it's done. Like all those movies are so much better. And so, yeah, The Insider is genuinely a masterpiece as well. And it is absolutely staggering that he made Heat, the greatest, highest film ever made with two of the greatest actors who've ever lived doing some of the best work they've ever done. And then just rolled in, got another staggeringly great performance out of Pacino, gets an utterly transfixing one from our own Russell Crowe. Yep. And, and the whole movie... Uh, I mean, it's peerless. If you thought the music was good in Heat, it's just as good in this. If you thought that the compositions were great, um, there's, there's there's a golf course scene in The Insider, which is maybe, I mean, again, I talked about the, uh, the best Superman movie is a trailer for Superman. <laughs> and a steal, the third one. 
there's maybe like the best expression of paranoia in like a golf, a driving range scene in, in the insider. I, I could, I've written thousands of words on that scene in my, in my time. Love it. Um, yeah, it's a special movie. It's, 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 it is truly, uh, special, truly special and truly impressive. And I mean, if you thought his skill set was high at the end of heat, whew, just wait till you watch the insider. Here's a horrible question for you, Blake. Okay, Michael Mann's died. Oof. Australian cinema has has decided to go to the Michael Mann expert and say, hey, what's your final words about Michael Mann's legacy in cinema? What is it? Wow. <laughs> um, I would just say that he is a director who we can all thank for us growing our own obsessive tendencies through his work and finding a true kinship with the levels of obsession, not only as they're displayed in the characters, but in the obsession and the, the, the perseverance for this level of perfection in his work that allows us to not only watch his films once and enjoy them and that's the least that any filmmaker wants to do. <laughs> watch something that they have and you like it and you watch it once. But I can comfortably say that I've watched some of his films at least two more than a hundred times. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and I still love them and relish them and can't wait to talk about them for hours. On end. <laughs> and so what a gift. Yeah. What a blessing that he was able to do that and he, that continues to create this reappraisal and us continually revisiting his work and continuing to passionately argue that the latest work or this work or this underappreciated work is the best thing ever. I mean, any director would hope to have that for one film, for two films, for Michael Mann's entire career is that. And so what a, what a gift that is, what a gift that we have. And, and his gift to us as consumers of cinema pales in comparison to how many filmmakers have idolized him and yearned to be him. None other than Chris Nolan. None other than like, like at different times of his career, it's like there are many filmmakers who just yearn to be this guy. And we may have not been able to be as on the forefront of filmmaking as them, but his influences are his tendrils of influence are just through so many genres. It's, it's not even, Fair. <laughs> Who's the next Michael Mann? Closest you that's out there now. That's a really great and a hard question. <laughs> um, I think the best technician that is as obsessive, but in a different way that I've seen right now is Fincher. Yep. As a pure technician, he's the best technical director working. Um, and that's just pure technician. Yeah. Um, Up and comers? It's really hard to say that I, I'm just trying to, um, I'm trying to think of like. So I'm just trying to pillage your information, <laughs> all your expertise, I'm, I'm, I'm man. Try, I'm, I'm just... trying to think like there's a. Joseph Kaczynski, he was yeah. Good. Look, Kaczynski's great. K- Kaczynski's a very te- like a uh, 
as far as like the way that he stages movies and sets them up. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's a lot of that. Um, but there's one thing about Michael Mann that people don't think about. It's like his instincts that I've, he, he created ways to look at certain things. Like you can't do action street action until you watch heat. Like all that time, there's like a hundred years of cinema to that point. Yeah. And then that heat was made and they're like, we can't do it anymore. Cause he didn't like, <laughs> we got to do it different. And so, um, He's the one, one of the, I, actually recently I was just thinking about an Australian director. Um, and, and this is not like, it's a huge series in Australia. So if anyone is listening, if you're listening to Australia international, like, um, the mystery road series directed by Ivan Sen that has now turned into a TV series on the ABC, um, stars Aaron Pedersen. It's been directed by a few different directors now. Warwick Thornton, Wayne Blair, Rachel Perkins, all great Indigenous directors, great Indigenous storytelling. But if you see the second film in the series is called Goldstone. There's an amazing couple of action sequences in that film that Ivan Sen, who directed and wrote the first two entries in the series, Mystery Road and Goldstone, he just shoots the action in a way that I've never seen before. Like I've just like counter to instincts, you know, like he, there's a car chase where you're expecting there's this huge frantic, huge scene. And Jay, who's the Aaron Pedersen's character is like, he just stays really close to this other car who's coming up to him with a shotgun. And instead of him like pulling out of the way and doing some stupid, like move through the bush, <laughs> he just waits until they're close enough to him. So then he can hit them. Like he, cause he knows that that's the way to not get shot. And it's like this, thing that's totally counter to your instincts as a film watcher. You're like, oh, go, Jay, swerve. Like, go away. Like, you can't be here anymore. But he just has this instinct. And then there's another great scene with um, uh, Aaron Pedersen and, uh, and Alex Russell, who plays another character um, in the film, where they are sweeping through this maze of, uh, like, uh, trailers, and they're tactically kind of hunting down these guys. And the way the camera follows them and then does these sort of out-of-body, omniscient views of him shooting this action is, like, so far apart and counterintuitive to instinct that I think that, man, I relish more Ivan Sen action because he's a very dramatic, independent director. Um, But, yeah, look, and, you know, people thought that Joe Carnahan, the guy who made Narc and then made The Grey was like a Michael Mann guy. And I was like, after I saw The Grey, which is one of my favorite yes. films, I was like, oh shit, like Carnahan's a man guy. But most of his movies Eesh. are trashed right now. Like, no, like, I mean, the last movie. <laughs> he drifted away I, a little. I, I'm not such a fan of his after that. But like, yeah, he was kind of a, one of the guys. And, uh, you know, got a lot of, you know, I got a lot of fondness for especially The Wrath of Man, Guy Ritchie's latest. Oh, I haven't Satan. seen that, that yet. A, Really terrific. Yeah, really another great L.A. crime film. Very muscular, tough. Um, and again, Guy Ritchie's moving away from his, like, formerly super fast-cut, frenetic, you know, pop culture kind of aesthetic and going back to, like, how do I tell this story in the most effective way possible? Yep. And The Gentleman, Wrath of Man double, I was like, yeah, I'm seeing a bit more of Michael Mann and Guy Ritchie than I've probably seen before. Yeah, we, we actually covered awesome. uh, Joe Carnahan for our fourth season. There you go. I love the gray. Love uh, the, the gray, gray was the big standout for us. We that was actually one of those cinematic experiences. Both Craig and I walked out of the cinema and we were just like, you know, those moments where you just walk out and you're like, oh, we are shattered after this movie. Like it just was. Oh, I agree. Hundred percent. Saw it in George Street. We might have even been in the same screening. I was absolutely shattered when I walked <laughs> out of it. I was like, that movie absolutely kicks yeah. ass. It's so good, so powerful, so moving. 
he, he's it's so different from everything else Callahan yeah, did. He's just never touched. He's just never touched anything like it. Like yep. since. Yeah, totally. You got little elements. I love that that parallel with man as well. You you can see it like he's taken in narc. He really sort of yes, takes that yes. in gritty world. And um, we even we did a mini episode uh, for Gavin O'Connor's Pride and Glory, which Joe Carnahan mm. wrote. Again, that world that, you know, again, the, the city becomes such a character in, in what's going on, which I think like Michael Mann is just the, the godfather of that, you know. Um, yeah. I love it so much. So, Craig, every week we do just do a little check-in to say overall – and Blake, I'd love your thoughts as well. Overall, what do you think of Heat? Oh, look, overall, Heat is still Heat. <laughs> um, it's, it's, I know it sounds silly, but it's a touch tone film. It's those films. So it's funny, we were talking about this earlier, you know, when you upgraded to Blu-ray. You know, whenever there's an upgrade, you know, from VHS, yeah, DVD, yeah. Blu-ray, 4K, there's a set of movies that you go, okay, I've got to rebuy these. Yeah, then, then, there, there, there's a not negotiable yeah. list. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it might not be, and it's funny, you know, it might not be, you might not watch it for ages, you know what I mean? But it needs to be there because that's my, that, that's what I need to get for the next um, level. Heat is that film. Um, Heat is that, I would almost say, yeah, you're right. It's one of those, it's that crime, it's that um, heist film that is better than, Better than the rest. But even beyond the genre of heist film, it's that film that is still better than most films that are out there. Um, just the way it's put together. You can come from it any angle. You come from it from music. You come from it directing. You come from it from an acting perspective. Everyone who comes from it in a certain angles, you're going to get something out of it that you just blows you away. Um, it's just too many. And it's hard to do because people who usually get too many ingredients and we've seen it too often they usually just make a fucking mash <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean this he's got all these amazing ingredients and they just play off each other so beautifully yeah so i can't yeah there's nothing that hasn't already been said i <laughs> love it so much <laughs> blake we're it's very clear you love this film and we're so glad you do but like it yeah what's what's your elevator pitch to someone that's never seen heat that's probably a good little throw out. It's quite simply the greatest crime film ever made. <laughs> and there's nothing better. And I've spoken about the film for 130 hours and dedicated more than two years of my life to it. <laughs> and I'm not sick of seeing oh, I it love or it. talking about it. So, and, and I, I can't say to many people, um, I, I don't know many people who could say this. I've seen it at least 200 times. So, what movie could I possibly recommend more than a movie that I've seen that many times and still not sick of in any way, shape or form. Yep. And the only reason I haven't watched it in a recent time is because I I'm keeping it special. I'm keeping it special. I really want to go and see, you know, especially in this absolutely rubbish pandemic time. Yep. Um, I really like, I really get emotional thinking about how good it's going to be to sit in a theater with my mates. And right now in LA, actually, like actually about 24 hours ago, um, and LA at the new bed, yep. which is Quentin Tarantino's theater, which only shows a film. Two of my dearest friends, Jordan Harper, who's a, an amazing author. And so for anyone's listening, go buy his book. She rides shotgun. It will 
knock your socks off. <laughs> Simply unputdownable um, book. Uh, he's actually a screenwriter as well. He um, was the executive producer and writer of a pilot for LA Confidential that was going to go to a TV oh, series that awesome. never got picked up. Uh, he's amazing. And my other friend, Travis Woods, who is a unfathomably great writer, maybe wrote the greatest single film review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a 10,000-word almost novella-sized review for Brightwell Darkroom and a great podcaster in his own right. They're two of my great buds. Travis Woods actually was on the 165th minute, so the minute just before Michael Mann, uh, <laughs> he was on the show with me, which is actually this, the minute that like devastated me probably the most in the whole series. But both those guys were in attendance at that screening, like, and they were like, they sent me a little note like representing one heat minute always, <laughs> which is really sweet. And I was like, there's nothing. We talk about something special. There is nothing that would be more special to me than getting out of this shitbag pandemic getting on a plane to go to LA, getting to the new Beverly or some films like great old beautiful house like it and going to watch heat with a bunch of my friends who were part of the show. Yep. Like if I could do that, <laughs> if I could hold out till then, <laughs> Oh my God, that would be an experience. But even not, if not, if I could just go and see it in a theater in Oz, when it reopens back up, yep. I will be there with freaking bells on man. Oh man. I, it would just be amazing. It's going to, it's going to be a good day, awesome. isn't it? Oh, the best movie days. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, you guys talk about Nolan. I saw all those movies and then I saw Tenet. So I, I, as I said to you guys at the beginning, I saw Predator, Jaws, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and then Heat. And then I went and saw Tenet. And then people were like, what do you think of Tenet? And I was like, it's fine. <laughs> like, how, so how, how do I how do I compare it to Predator, yep. Jaws, 2001 A Space Odyssey and then Heat and then go see Tenet. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. It's not any of those. It's not even close to any of those. Um, so, yeah, it's just one of those things. Uh, um, yeah, that's what I'm really looking forward to. I'm the to. only person from, from first to last who actually enjoys Tenet. So, um, yeah. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. I guess for me, like when I think about this film, one, I, I can't understate how huge it is that Blake's seen this movie 200 times. As someone who has logged every one of his movies for the last 11 years, I know how many movies I've watched how many times. Um, and so I know that to get over like 100 movies is huge like in terms of watching one movie. Um, I think that... Yeah, that's exactly kids. right. That's- I haven't watched it as much since the kids, but I would just say to you, like, it's not that hard if you watch it once, like, especially before I had kids. Yeah. Once a week at least. <laughs> once a week at least for four years, that's 200 times. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. Not that hard. Not that hard to do in the grand scheme of film watching. <laughs> Love it. Love it. I think uh, for me, I didn't realize how wide, as you said, Blake, the tendrils of this film are. Um, and the the tendrils of Michael Mann was coming into this podcast, um, and the beautiful connection between Bigelow and Mann as well has really blown me away. Mm. Um, and so I I've said to Craig a few times off air, and maybe a couple times on air, the only director we've covered so far that we considered like a master level has been Robert Zemeckis um, and all others that we've sort of tackled. We've gone, they're really good. There was a great argument about if Sam Raimi was a better director than Catherine Bigelow. Um, in, and when when Raimi's really firing. It's hard. I know. It's hard. They're, but when they're both firing, it's, man, they're both very good. I, I think tech, technically, technically Bigelow. 
creatively Raimi. I love it. Yeah, maybe. I love it. I could hear both those arguments. I think it's fun. I don't want to take you guys down a rabbit hole, but man, they're both very good. I, I think the, the pros for Raimi, just to, to stay there, was a simple plan was really, and the gift were just two mm. cracking films. And actually, I'm really excited. Craig, I don't know if you saw, Imprint Films were releasing The Gift. The Gift? Um, actually, I think, Blake, you have a, uh, a podcast that covers some of their stuff, don't you? Yeah, uh, me and the great Alexi Toliopoulos from Total Reboot have got a podcast. We actually have two podcasts um, now, like physical media podcasts. One's called The Imprint Companion, which is our exclusive to Imprint um, uh, sort of uh, coverage of everything that they release. Um, and the other one is called A Serious Disc Agreement <laughs> from Last of the Mohicans. Uh, quote, uh, someday you and I are going to have a serious disagreement. <laughs> um, so The Serious Disc Agreement is our physical media show. We just do it weekly. And we just really shout out and praise the amazing stuff that's out on physical media and the stuff that, again, as I think Craig put it so beautifully, is like the stuff that um, cuts through to tell you what is worth upgrading, yep. um, you know, the stuff that is really essential. And, you know, we're covering stuff from Imprint and we're covering stuff from Criterion and Second Sight and Umbrella and um, Indicator and a bunch of other stuff, just like the stuff that is just so wildly great. And it has all that real cinephile stuff like – Great commentary tracks, great interviews, great docos, great, you know, um, and, you know, we always dream about the heat that comes out that has both versions of heat and LA takedown um, with a new transfer, you know, like that's, that's the, that's the version that you would always want, you know, but that we talk about all that sort of real geeky physical media stuff. Cause yeah, I don't know about you guys, but. Um, I, I trust my shelf that's to the, to the left of me, uh, way more than I trust, uh, than I trust oh, any streaming service to, to be my, oh, yeah. to, to be my, uh, access point for everything. Even like, uh, and again, little rabbit hole here, but when you watch a streaming service, you, like Australia, they've, they've paired back our bandwidth anyway on all streaming services. So you're clearly mm. not getting high definition versions of anything. Um, mm -hmm. and so like, I, if I can pull it off the shelf, I'm going to do it, you know? Because I want to see yeah. it. Yeah, there's no high def of Katie Holmes's tits. <laughs> we go on the gift. Oh yikes! <laughs> you said rabbit ra Reddit rabbit hole, man. I'm sure someone on Reddit's put that bad boy up there in high def for you. Oh, I'm, I'm very sure. sure. Got there's another rabbit subreddit <laughs> called Cinnashot. It'll be up right. there. <laughs> uh, oh no, no, Cinnashot is actually a pretty good one. It shows that they've got it's like art. amazing it's art. films. <laughs> That's right. It's an artful one. That's right. It's art. It's all art, man. It Jeff, is. It's all it art. is. Thank you, Craig. Thanks just for taking us. It's a weekly. It's not a from first to last podcast without Craig mentioning someone's breast. Um, <laughs> at least it's not James Earl Jones this week. Uh, we've had many a chats about his mm. breasts. Um, <laughs> but, Just saying. <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> He's regretting being on here. Let's, not, let's keep it going. I just love, like for me, I was a bit worried that heat wouldn't hold up to what my memory of it was when I found out how long it had been since I'd watched the film. But what really I adore about this film is, one, like you guys have said, it's firing on every cylinder like across the board is just, there's no weak points in this film at all. Um, but it is so dense and it's got this almost like, I just picture Michael Mann having a J.K. Rowling cupboard of just shoe boxes of information about everybody. And you could just draw on each of those characters and go off and have a TV series or a film about each of those characters. And it would be just as rich as heat. 
Um, it just feels so real and lived in. And it is a world that I would happily have more of. But like we've talked about, I'm quite happy for my thoughts to be the things that I have about the world outside of heat because, again, the ending is just so perfect. The idea of two alpha males at the top of their game at whatever they're doing, their worlds are pretty much like just exploding or imploding because of how committed they are to their craft, whatever that craft may be. And the strange connection that they have to one another um, that ends with that holding hands is just like, it's seriously, it's just such a perfect, um, perfect film. And on Letterboxd, I don't often drop a five-star review oh, on wow. the film and i was just like uh, i actually dropped two this week i'm freaking in love with pixar's coco i've just been watching that so <laughs> much lately and it shatters me every time but the heat is just like to me it's it's seriously like one of the best films we've covered on this podcast um and there's 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 Easily. nothing that i would go oh man i wish that it wasn't like Considering it's an almost three-hour movie, it doesn't drag at any point. Yeah, that you asked one thing about what I got out of. I think you asked what what I got out of the last screening. <clears throat> what I'm constantly surprised about is how fast it feels yeah. to me. Like I don't have an experience. I know, and all I do is I feel sorry for anyone who doesn't have that same experience <laughs> of like how fast it is, because it's so fast. Yeah. and like. There are 90-minute films, I'm sure all three of us have sat through, and we check our watches 40 times. Yep. And you're like, how oh. can this – when is this? And, like, in heat, I'm like, blink, and it's done. And you're like, whoa, like, that was a movie. Yep. Like, that thing moves, baby. Doesn't that thing move? Yep. Like, it's – that's what we're here for, you know? And there's that's there's yeah. not many films, like say those moments, like you might get a text message in the middle of watching a film and you just have a look down and you're like, oh, I just missed something in that, you know, 20 seconds, 10 seconds. Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to catch up anyway. And like during my watching of Heat, I actually was like, no, damn it. I got to go back and just see what I missed. What were the five seconds I missed? Because I know there's <laughs> something in there that's probably going to be quite crucial that, that I've, I've missed. And I love that you went there, Blake, about the fact that probably the other fin the director working at the moment that feels like this in its, uh, in its attention to detail, the meticulous nature of their filmmaking is Fincher. And mm. when I gobbled up all the special features of the Zodiac Blu-ray when it came out in that beautiful um, double-disc edition, um, and you watch the documentary that shows Jake Gyllenhaal try and toss the book uh, in the perfect way for David Fincher. <laughs> I think it's something crazy like 40 to 60 times or something. And, uh, you know, you could just picture man having this laser-focused idea of what he wants to get i think we heard it in um in last the mohicans and you can probably debunk this if it's not true that it was reported that um that the studio actually sent someone to stand behind michael mann because they were doing so many takes in the filming of last the mohicans to say hey that's enough michael it's time to move on yeah they they there was a lot of rumors that's an i think that one's apocryphal <clears throat> about that but there were genuine conflicts on the set 
because of the conditions and the actors and the, the length of takes and the, the, the scope of those things. And, um, they were very lucky cause like, it's such an ambitious movie. Yeah. Um, the cinematographer quit halfway through, um, or like basically halfway through and then Dante Spinotti took over and like did the rest of the filming and all of the pickup shots where Studi hurt his knee. And fortunately they were able to shut down production and then they were able to film more while the production was technically closed with less people on board and things like that. So yeah, it was, um, last of the Mohicans is, uh, the more that I learned about it has a really fascinating, you know, in the trenches. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, a tough bunch of stories that had some technicians and people that were very upset with Michael Mann on that set because of, you know, and I think that that's the importance around having the right crew with him there. He maybe didn't have the right crew. Yeah. You know, he was sort of assigned a few people and um, it became really challenging, but they ended up working it out and getting it done. Um, but yeah, that movie just made a squillion bucks. So they were yeah. like happy. <laughs> they were happy. It made a lot of money. So I think that, that helped uh, mask some of the issues that were on set at the time. Yeah. And Heat goes on to make a poop ton of money. Yeah, eventually. But this is what happens. It makes enough money. Um, but this is the thing I'll never get. Uh, there's a great, there's a great sort of cinematic voice. Christopher Tapley used to work for Variety. He's a great reporter. Um, but he said heat is unsullied by Oscar, like as in the Oscars. Yep. It's unsullied. It does because <laughs> it's got no. And and I I think that I genuinely think it's the hangover from Last of the Mohicans. I think there might have been some uh, unions and stuff like that, and some guilds that were very angry with Michael Mann and Reason. They didn't nominate any of them. But you watch any movie from 1995 today, especially all the films that won the Oscars that year yep. um, for the 90. Well, there was be the early 96 Oscars for 95. Yep. If you can tell me that a single one of them is as technically good as Heat, I'll give you a hundred dollars. What? Yeah. Find me on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to it. I'll give you. $100. You, you can give that Twitter a plug in a moment. But like, like ninety five, when you look at the films being made, like what was the Oscar darling that year? Oh, Braveheart. There we go. Braveheart was like, which you know, totally understandable that Braveheart is is the the big winner there. But just like, I'll just shout out some of the other movies. It's like you've got. Sense and Sensibility, yep. Babe, The Postman, Braveheart, Apollo 13. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. Are we, sh- oh. are we sure? The are we sure the Postman? <laughs> Waterworld. This is the Italian Postman Kevin too. Don't forget Waterworld. This isn't, this, isn't this, this, this isn't the Costner Postman. <laughs> and like the best directors, oh. <laughs> like Tim Robbins for Dead Man Walking. Yep. Who 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 even cares? Um, you know, like no offense. You know, Tim Robbins is a great actor and a good director, but like, who cares? Yep. Um, um, no, Ashley Judd nominated for best supporting actress. Yeah, um, like, really lunacy. The best actor nominations of that year: Richard Dreyfuss for Mr. Holland's Office, Get Out of Here. Um, yeah, I never like, enjoyed it. You know, Massimo Troisi for The Postman as well. See ya. Um, and you know. I just can't fathom how Val Kilmer doesn't get a run at in a year where like Tim Roth and Rob Roy is rubbish. It's not Tim Roth's second or third or fifth best performance. Um, and you know, just everything like that. I look at this, I'm just like, really? Like, really? Yep. Is this, is this what it is? Um, and then, like I said, I, I, the upper volume ones there, but like art direction, sound effects, editing, like, come on, yeah, come on. There's no, there's no heat editing or four <laughs> editors. There were four editors and they edited this movie between like November and December for a December release. They were cutting it on the fly. Like it's insane. Yeah. yeah so I, I, I just, I don't know. 
I like that. Unsullied by Unsullied. Oscars. Makes so much <laughs> Unsullied. Sense. Yeah. I love it. So, guys, we've probably reached that point where we would take a look at our Cineful Studio whiteboard. Um, it's it's currently listed. Craig, you're wild this season. Your choices for ranking movies this season is just out of control, I'm just saying, <laughs> off the bat. But we've got for Craig at number one, Last of the Mohicans so far, mm. followed by Manhunter, The Keep and Thief. That's right, Blake. Craig has put The Keep above Thief. Man, The Keep is a movie that I'll just keep... Rem- I'll, I'm, I'm still thinking about, man. <laughs> I'm still thinking about. One of the first things when I when I heard you were getting Blake on here was, I wonder what he thought of The Keep. It just, it's, 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 it's one of those weird things that... You know how we, we were talking about how you bring your imagination into a yep. film, how you bring your thoughts and, yep. and everything? The Keep is just one of those films where I'm like, man, there's something about it that I just... Yeah, I just, I can't put my finger on it. I, I want to know more. You know, I know there's books and stuff, but I want to know what Michael Mann wanted. Yeah, look, you know um, I, mean? so, I completely agree. I really have a lot of time for The Keep. I've got a lot of time <laughs> for it uh, because it's tragic. Yeah. Like it's, it's, yeah. and I'm, I don't know about you guys, but, and I hope your listeners are the same. I'm all about a insanely ambitious failure. 100%. Like I would much rather watch, give me 10 ambitious failures rather than one playing it safe, you know, like, like playing it safe, good movie, ambitious failure. I'm all like, I'll drink them up for days, you know? So the keep is exactly that. Like it's the, it's the OG release the Snyder Cut. Yeah. The studio literally hacked it to pieces and things could not get finished. They just said, no, we're not doing it. It's. It's just ingredients. Like you, it was like we were talking about why heat is so amazing. Is you know you had Scott Glenn, you had Gabriel Byrne, you have all these yeah, amazing I mean, actors, you know, and, and then, the yeah, the crew behind just, the scenes. Like you know, they were just such great set design by the guy that did like Lawrence of Arabia. You know, he's really going. He's shooting for the moon here, um, and yeah. you know. Um, it is such a shame. Like there's moments where it literally cuts and even the soundtrack is cut in the cut. It's like, so we talked about yeah. it. It's almost yeah, like, I, I, I can tell you unequivocally that there is no, there's no, as early as like a couple of months ago, there is no high definition transfer. Like there's yeah. no 35 mil, like pristine transfer that can be made into high definition to even be released on Blu-ray. So like Via Vision Entertainment who do imprint films, yep. um, those guys have released like one of the only DVDs in the world that you can get of The Keep is released through Via Vision through Australia. So if you're lucky enough to have grabbed it, you didn't have to buy it off of eBay like I did originally from a guy who had like a video hacked version oh, for a DVD whoa. sold from Denmark. Because that's... I'm watching it on yeah, stand. Like, at least you got it on stand, right? But like there's no HD. There is no HD version of The Keep. There is not one. So... Crazy. I've seen a scan of a 35 mil print, but there's no HD scan, a master yeah, that's wow. available to even put on a Blu-ray. So yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating. Uh, and like I said, it's, it started the rabbit hole. I've not done more research for an episode than I did for the keep. And, and <laughs> I just, every day I found more and more info that I was just like, holy crap, I've got to keep digging. I've got to keep digging. So, uh, absolutely love it. I did throw that in there cause I got a good chat out of you. So, um, 
I love the keep. It's so good. The, uh, the, there you I, go. I will say, looking your way, Ron Howard, listen to Blake Howard here because he knows what he's talking about. Get a bit dirty, Ron. We did Ron Howard in season <laughs> five and towards the end, you're just like, we're watching the same movie every day. He's wearing the same the same safe, safe suit. We want to see you, you get all... Yeah, I mean, look, that's why Frost Nixon leaps out at the end of his resume. 100%. It's like something that's so much... Like, it's just towers above... Some of the other stuff, you're like, oh, God, where was this yeah, bit? Come right. on, Ron, let's go. Where, where are you hiding that guy? Um, for myself, we got it number one, Last of the Mohicans, number two, Thief, number three, Manhunter, and number four, The Keep. Um, I just think the Thief to Manhunter one was my tough little choice there, Blake, but I think mm. Thief is such a well-rounded and probably the most solid first film that we've covered on this podcast. It's just so, mm. like, assured. And we sort of, where we learnt about uh, Michael Mann's career pre-making films you know even leading up to the Jericho Mile we were expecting an assured sort of first film uh, and yeah. we, we sure as heck got it you got yeah, it so you got it so I'm gonna hazard a guess Craig where, where are you dropping heat yeah yeah. Oh look, Heat's number one. Let's all let's all just <laughs> let's all just go straight to the point and, here. And, and <laughs> let's say it's probably around. gonna stay there. I'm hoping to be surprised, but I know it's gonna be there at the end of the season. Yeah. I'm hoping black hat. Oh uh, <laughs> look, there, mate, the, the there's a frothy black hat fan base that'll be baying for blood that it's not your number I one. Really yeah, mate, they're wait. out there. They're can't out there. Wait. I can't wait to hear. Please please send me a text on. or an email once you've experienced them and hi to you all out there listening. <laughs> um, look, uh, Jeff, Craig, uh, I mean, I find it impossible to rank Michael Mann. Like, it's really hard for me. Um, yeah. The answer I can say is number one is heat. Yep. And number two is the insider for me. Love it. And – and then there is an absolute debacle of a car crash where, like, Mohicans, Thief, Manhunter, Ali, Vice, like, I don't, I genuinely don't know. At the bottom of that list is probably Black Hat. Like, genuinely, that's where I would put Black Hat as my lowest. So fascinating. I put, I put the keeper, I put the keep above Black Hat and just, um, maybe just, or even on the same par as actually no, I put put this above um, the I put this above uh, the keep would be the Jericho Mile. I consider that a film because like it's a it plays like a film. If you guys have never seen no. it, like, seek it out. No. It's amazing. It's like a really great sport. It's like the best sports movie set in a prison. Right? <laughs> it's about a it's about a guy who is trying to break an Olympic or just happens to be like you know, doing his time in typical Michael Mann movie. He's doing his time, not letting the time do him. And he's running around a track to amuse himself. And what happens is someone at the prison sees him running around this track over and over again and starts timing him and goes, he's running like a four minute mile. Let's like time him. Right. So he starts running Olympic times. And so he gets permission to run around this track. And then <clears throat> he's like in this really, crazy prison with all these gangs and stuff and all this conflict. And he's trying to do his time number one and also try and maybe be allowed out for permission to compete in an Olympic trial to run. It's a great sports movie. It's really terrific. It's very lean, has a great use of the song sympathy for the devil. Um, and it's awesome. And so I think that that's there, but I don't, I could not, I could not tell you <laughs> other than heat and the insider at number one and number two and blackout as the last one really what any kind of order is. Love it. Awesome. I couldn't tell That's you. Awesome. I couldn't tell you. I love them all 
And on, a, on their given day, they're going to break into number three, but nothing is going to break one or two. Oh, I love it. Thank you so awesome. much, Blake. Now, Craig, if people want to talk to us about Black Hat or our opinions on other <laughs> films, or even they've yes. got some thoughts about Zack Snyder they want to bring back up again, where can people find us? <laughs> you can go on to Twitter. Um, you can go on to Instagram at FFTL Podcast. Um, go on to our Facebook um, from First Last Podcast. We're on there. Just get on there. Throw some comments on there as well. Um, if you really want to be more direct with your hate, go on to info <laughs> at FFTLpodcast.com. Um, if you're a hacker and really want to destroy the website, it's www.FFTLpodcast.com. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> like we always say, please subscribe, share us with a friend, uh, get in touch with us. We love talking with you. Now, now, Blake, where can people find you? Uh, best place to find the all the things that we do at One Heat Minute is just oneheatminute.com. That's One Heat Minute Productions. That's all of our podcasts. Um, that The socials that are connected to that are at OHM Pods, um, both on Twitter and Instagram. And I am One Blake Minute on Twitter. I do not have Facebook. Um, I don't have anything else. So Twitter and um, uh, oneheatminute.com is the best place to find everything that we're up to. And like I said, Right now, up to my absolute eyeballs in Zodiac Chronicle um, as we finish rounding that out. It's a 24-episode series um, on David Fincher's Zodiac. Um, we've had James Vanderbilt. We've had John Carroll Lynch. We've had Donal Logue. We've had an incredible array of people come along to chat to us. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really special show. It's been great to produce. Um, and, yeah, next one is... Um, Podcaster and Commander on Peter Weir's oh. 2003 masterpiece, Master and Commander. Craig and I freaking <sighs> love that movie, Blake. When I saw it's you popping movie. up on socials, I was like, holy crud. He's like tapping right into <laughs> our veins at the moment. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I feel like... Um, I feel like Master and Commander is a movie that is like bringing people out of the woodwork because like everyone I've spoken to about it is exactly your reaction. It's like, oh my God, that movie rips. Yeah. Like I haven't thought about it in a lot enough, but I love it. And I went and bought yeah. the book. Yeah, same. But I I couldn't get, I couldn't, I won't lie, I couldn't get into them. I ended up watching Hornblower <laughs> yeah. instead. Hornblower. Love Hornblower. Hornblower. With, Hornblower. Um, was that with uh, Young Griffith's name? Iron Gra um, Young Griffith. Griffith. Yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah, that show. It. I actually was thinking about it today because I've been... As I do for every one of our projects, I've been like reading the O'Brien books. I've been reading a great book by Brian Lavery, who's a UK author, who was a consultant on the film. I'm hoping to speak to you for the show. And um, yeah, like I've been reading a bunch of this stuff and I was thinking, oh, Hornblower. Yeah, I totally... I yeah, I, I went down... I almost went down a full rabbit hole with that. I almost ended up on Sean Sharp. Bean's... Oh, um, I love those Sharp. books. <laughs> um, I, actually, the Hornblower books, absolute bangers. The fact that they read so well in a modern sense for a novel is just astounding. Like, they, they really... They read so easily. Um, yeah. Yeah. The series is good, too. Not as good as Master and Commander, because obviously it doesn't have the budget or the eye for it, but... Yeah, I can't wait to hear it, Blake. Um, as always... Drink Glee Coffee. Big shout out to our sponsors, Glee Coffee. Get on there, buy some coffee beans. Free delivery across Australia at the moment. Uh, our international listeners, they're working on it. They're going to get stuff over to you when they can. But use our code FFTL. You get 15% off. And we are tasting their beautiful spring range tonight. So I'm loving it. Um, and as always, we, we love having you on board for the journey. Next week, we are talking the insider. And I can't wait to Damn. dig into this. I don't think I've seen it since cinemas, Craig. So I'm in for no, a same. huge adventure. All I can remember is Rusty put on the beef for this role. <laughs> Blake, is there any other, is there any additions or is it just pretty much a straight one that's out? 
No, the insider and heater, what he's tinkered with the least. And he, he only took out a line of dialogue and it was just framing and color correcting, which is what's infuriating because it's like, I want the different cuts. Ali has three cuts. Yeah. Black Hat has two. Oh, shit. Uh, Miami Vice has two. Miami Vice is about to have three. We're doing a fan cut for our series, Miami Nice. We're creating the Miami Nice cut. Um, one of the, an editor that, an editor that we know is uh, kind enough. The great Vashunita Nidamansky um, is a, a legendary editor in Hollywood and he's uh, cutting together a Miami Nice cut. So there'll be a third fan editor. Love that. it. But yeah, um, but uh, no, Thief hasn't been touched. The Insider hasn't been touched. Heat has been barely touched. Um, no, Hickens has, has got one alternate cut, but yeah, he's, he's a tinkerer. I do. But the insider oh, cool. don't, not a frame. So not a frame. I, I've awesome. really struggled to find, is the, has the Black Hat Director's Cup been released, Blake, or is that sort of one of those Holy Grail rumoured cuts floating about? Uh, in America, it was released on the FX channel. Yeah, wow. Uh, and uh, and boffins on the internet, shall we say, um, provided me with access to view it myself, <laughs> which I gleefully... Uh, uh, Took, took up. <laughs> Love it. So, cool. Blake, thank you so, so much for your time. We have absolutely adored having you on here. It's been so great. Oh, it's been so much um, fun. I love it. Well, look, no, thank, <laughs> thanks for the invite. It's been, a, it, I, I can genuinely say it has been a while between Talking Heat um, for this show. It's actually March 9 of this year. I did a one heat minute podcast, funnily enough, with Guillermo del Toro. Yikes. Um, who's a heat acolyte, uh, as he calls it. Um, and he calls Michael Mann Uncle Mike. Um, <laughs> because the, the, Michael Mann is such a huge champion of the work of Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuaron and uh, um, uh, Inaritu. Yep. And uh, so those three guys call him Uncle Mike. And uh, so it's been a while between drinks, talking heat, but. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's so awesome to hear you guys revisiting it, and after a long time between drinks and seeing all the things that are seen, it's a, uh, it's it's exactly why I wanted to do the show. So it's a, oh, a treat it. to talk to you guys about it on your show. Thank you so much, Blake. Please Thanks, mate. get out Thank there, so listen much. to the work Blake's doing. It is incredible. Uh, the the Zodiac Chronicle early episode where you really broke down the the opening song, um, and really went into detail. Was the band Donovan? Was it? Um, yeah, Donovan's Hurdy Gurdy yeah. Man. We break that down. Oh, yeah. and the music nerd in me just like gushed for weeks after that episode <laughs> to Craig about how good it was. So please get out there, listen to it. We're going to keep dropping content. We got the insider. We're really excited for that. So from all of us here at From First to Last Podcast, I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Craig Killian. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>